Hello and welcome to episode 193 of The Crate and Crowbar. It is the 13th of June 2017. My name is Chris Sesson and tonight I'm joined by Tom Senior Hello. and Tom Francis. Hello. E3, the thing that we've been explaining as a reason to not have any news, despite just talking about Far Cry, <laughs> for the last six weeks or so. Which we may do so again, who knows? <laughs> Indeed, mm. is finally here. Yay. Yay. I feel like... Um, uh, I've seen in previous years there's usually been like one conference we haven't seen at the time we do the podcast mm. but this time we've seen all of them we? yeah uh, though it's we'll probably get to this but it's been a not the most like staggeringly kind of mind-blowing set of conferences as far as E3s go I haven't felt too bad about missing most of them because mm. you know this is I haven't stayed up for any conferences this year or anything and I've mostly just caught up by watching trailers after the fact yeah for me they've been neatly divided into can easily watch at normal reasonable hours and just no way i'm mm. could possibly stay up for that yeah so there's been no decisions to make it felt like i mean previous years is sometimes like an evening where you get like something at six something at nine and something at two and so by the time you yeah it's kind of worth staying up but there's been a lot of 5 a.m 4 a.m conferences this yeah. year because i guess they're shunting them into the evening pacific time and that's just basically nah at that point <laughs> I was looking at, um, so I've been watching on Twitch and YouTube and Steam, weirdly. Steam's mm. website, not even Steam itself, but like the PC gaming show was um, was streamed from there, which I haven't seen before. Um, Steam wins out of those three because it turns off chat by default. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and on the others, it is like, I was watching um, the EA one on YouTube and the chat, you know, it scrolls past at an insane rate that you couldn't possibly read it. But what you can see is the giant ASCII swastikas, the word Hitler again and again and again, and the N-word again and again and again, and then Battlefront 2. <laughs> <laughs> the entire content of the... If, if you replace chat. Battlefront 2 with uh, Mountain Blade 2, it's pretty much identical for the PC game. Which, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, there's always... That's a Twitch. Concept. I actually didn't realise that, um, that, that we were going to have an actual Bannerlord trailer at the They, they were rewarded, weekend. yes. Yeah, uh, and... That, as soon as that started happening, like I had like flash, like I, I had my my kind of like war zone flashbacks to running the PC Gamer live stream at the weekend of two years in a row, hmm. where just people demanding Bannerlord for some reason for days. Yeah, looks yeah. all right. It looks all <laughs> it's right. Quite good. It looks all right. <laughs> I suppose. So we need to dwell on that. So this is going to be a very E three heavy pod. Um, because there's loads to talk about, really. Yeah, it was um, nice, actually, uh, although we're, we're saying it's maybe not the most overwhelming E3 ever, but it does feel like I haven't really had anything on my radar at all before this. Mm. <laughs> um, and this reminded me of some things and also obviously loads of new stuff. Yeah, so we should probably just jump in, see where we end up. And to be honest, it would make sense if we started and got out of the way Far Cry 5, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to suggest... Because we knew we'd find out more at E3. They've trickled out information. And this is the first time, I guess, we've seen it. Well, it was that thing. It, it, it looked like they were setting up a kind of like a proper gameplay demo. Uh, by which I mean the live playing of the game. <laughs> um, uh, but then it was sort of intercut with obviously cutscene bits and, and descended into pure trailer so in terms of what you actually do in the far cry beyond spot people and shoot them there wasn't a lot to go on yeah so there's a a scene where like the player was creeping down towards some militia people near a truck and had an npc sniping from a tower sort of um uh talking over comms and waiting for the player to sort of break um uh break stealth and then 
she fires. But yeah, when she actually fires, it's kind of a cutscene. Um, so I don't know if that's how it works in the game. I hope not. Um, and yeah, we didn't really, I wouldn't say they showed anything that made it look interestingly different to previous Far Cry's. Um, uh, I'm still pretty optimistic for it because I just think the uh, completely independently of the story side of the Far Cry games, the mechanics of them have been kind of getting better over the, uh, mm. the iterations for me anyway, for the for the outpost-oriented gamer, <laughs> which is me. <laughs> uh, they've been sort of... That's your YouTuber name. <laughs> they've been going deeper and deeper on that. And as I said previously, like, they, there's an interview where they say they would like to apply that kind of uh, approach from any angle philosophy to the main plot. And that would be amazing if they do even 10% of that. Mm. I also, I can't remember if we mentioned this before, but I, I heard that um, you get to choose your gender in this one. Oh, cool. It'd be uh, man cop or lady cop. <laughs> Did um, produce the best screenshot of E3 this year, uh, which is a woman in the background with a baseball bat chasing a dog <laughs> with an assault rifle in its teeth <laughs> and the protagonist's hand reaching out to grab the assault rifle as the dog ferries it to you. That, that's <laughs> pretty good. Pure video games. If you're going to have bull shots, you might as well have them. Yeah, it's like a total that. bull shot. <laughs> There's no way it looks like that. Um yeah, it's interesting because like, when they first brought it out on stage at the Ubisoft conference, there was um, like the, they did the sort of like things are serious in Hope County, Montana. Nobody knows how we're going to survive this horrible thing that's happened. Bomb pontoons, <laughs> bombs, 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 cars, 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 dogs. <laughs> and there was a big. It, 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 there was a yeah. There was a pretty big disconnect between ostensible kind of you know chin strokey topical setup and mm. total video game i kind of fell apart even before the trailer started because he said um he's trying to describe the atmosphere in hope county and he says uh, people are fucking scared and just because he said the word fucking a lot of the crowd laughed because apparently <laughs> it's that kind of crowd and so then he kind of like made a joke of it as well and said oh i had to say it <laughs> like, this is say it. weird tonally now yeah yeah it was weird like I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It means that this is going to be, like, one of the fun Far Cries. I mean, they're all fun, but you know what I mean? Like, not not totally yeah. taking itself too seriously. Mm. Um, and they emphasized co-op in that in that trailer as well. Um, but, it, yeah, so I feel like a lot of the sort of discussion when they first revealed that art about whether or not the setting was going to be controversial, the, uh, the petition that some obviously bored people made to get it uh you know taken down as uh offensive against white american people that probably is going nowhere now that it's been revealed to be a wacky game about flying a big yellow plane <laughs> wasn't there another outcry from that corner of the internet about wolfenstein there was yes <laughs> oh god the, yeah <laughs> they're actual nazis <laughs> yeah, exactly there's there's been a lot of great uh great jokes about that there's um someone remade the final cuts of the trailer as a gif but when the splash page for wolfenstein 2 shows up it's not wolfenstein 2 the new colossus it's wolfenstein 2 so much for the tolerant left <laughs> <laughs> which is brilliant yeah. um someone's suggesting a mod where every time one of them dies they save so much for the tolerant left <laughs> <laughs> um let's, actually let's talk about Wolfenstein. let's talk about Wolfenstein, this is, yeah. that was that i think that was the first game revealed at the c3 that uh, actually well so I watched I watched all of the the Bethesda conference generally was the first one that contained things that I was like oh, cool a thing I didn't know was happening that yeah. is cool, um, but yeah Wolfenstein two is definitely one of those things. It's a weird trailer. Yeah, yeah, great. It's so strange, but I really like it uh, because it shows it's kind of doubling down on the strange mix of tones that Wolfenstein 
one somehow pulled off madly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's got like moments of genuinely really good uh, like sight gags, stuff mm. that you don't see executed well in games ever, like the robot arm that malfunctions and the guy who's trying to eat a biscuit oh, and yeah. ends up hitting himself in the face <laughs> with a biscuit. It's just a really funny, well-timed piece of kind of visual performance that mm. is just, uh, it could do that, but it could also have BJ Blazkowicz like, like raving at a socialist getting up out of a table with a cup of tea in his hand kicking a table across the room and saying I've got a kid on the way I'm not going to raise him in front of any goddamn Nazis <laughs> and uh, then firing two quad barreled shotguns in each hand yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, 10 out of 10 already as far as I've been yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, just it looks like an absolute riot no, and I yeah. can't wait to play it it was surprising so there's two like uh, at least two pseudo adverts at the start and then there's a bunch of kind of cinematic stuff, but then there's just a lot of like conversations in that trailer. It's like seventy percent just people talking in a room. Yeah, it's weird. And then like thirty percent <laughs> dual quad barrel shotguns. It's weird because like the first, the, well, the new order, not the first Wolfenstein game. That's ridiculous. Because <laughs> um, this is Wolfenstein Eleven. It's worth bearing in mind. Like the reason, <laughs> the reason I think that it's Wolfenstein Two, but with like a Roman numeral Two, yeah, is because yeah. it is actually Eleven. Um, <laughs> like the like. It's a surprisingly talky game as well, a surprisingly writing heavy game, and yeah, surprisingly yeah. well written. I think that was the thing that took everyone by surprise: is yeah. that it's it's enormously overwritten, like, it, but in a deliberate way. Like, it's it's hyper, it it it's hyper large in everything it does. So, the sort of the dialogue is kind of very heavy with imagery and kind of big characters and big personalities, and all the performances are really big. But I think it's it's weird. Like the reason it, the way it ties together all those sort of disparate things and somehow holds together is because it's all sort of executed with the same like same amount of energy like whatever it's doing it's always doing something to 11 basically mm. um the lsd trip bit at the end mm. or the guy popping a tab of acid and then just seeing a little chameleon that someone's obviously hand drawn onto that environment i don't know if that's just for the trailer but god knows yeah, it's um, it goes beyond anything that was in the first game. The first game did have that type of humour, mm. but it's obviously done very well for them because there seem to be a lot more resources in at least the presentation on all side of the the dialogue stuff and the cutscene stuff. Yeah, um, and I kind of trust machine games to make a really good, like, exciting shooter. Just if it just feels like the first game. The first game was an all right stealth game actually. Um, mm. Some of the levels are actually quite good at letting you stealth around and get up behind Nazis. I think it was it worked as a stealth game predominantly because it was also brilliant if it stopped being a stealth game mm, um there's, bit, there's a bit in the old blood where it forced it's you know an instant fail stealth and oh, i think right. that's that's the first part of that game that i really didn't like because mm. it should just let you start firing shotguns at people really mm. um in order to yeah, take advantage of strengths but yeah totally they didn't seem to reveal very much by way of like um mechanical changes to the game like you, you can see that vj vaskovitz has the power suit from the first game mm. which you don't actually wear you just find as part of the plot but i didn't see if there was anything that would necessarily show that you can use the sort of superpower stuff that another character gets in no there's a bit game. where he rides a robot dog that can breathe fire yes that's <laughs> uh, true actually there's a bit where he's in a like a like a stilt walker type device mm. climbing over some walls so i think there's gonna be a lot of plugging that suit into bigger suits to do exciting things <laughs> or for, onto a dog or onto the dog yeah yeah I enjoyed the um the sort of cut of like sixties American television, but in Nazis. Um, they did at the beginning of the trailer because that is a weird that is a weird trailer because it's sort of quite a lot of like contiguous cutscenes and 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 contiguous you know play, 
but also trailer stuff and it's like nine minutes long yeah like it's, it feels like two different videos I thought together. they submitted the wrong cut of this <laughs> to the conference is it, and it has it run by accident and are they now sort of owning it but apparently it just wants to be its own thing and just have, have a really unconventional trailer format um and not just sort of show the game for nine minutes straight which mm. is you know i admire the fact it's putting its tone up in, up front especially because it's a shooter and you kind of know what you're getting there and watching nine minutes of it isn't going to tell you a huge amount about what the shooting is yeah really like. and i think they bethesda didn't really have a massive hitter they didn't have a new fallout or a new elder scrolls no, and so they needed this to fill that role and it, i think it can but you have to sort of uh convince people that it's something different that it's not mm-hmm. uh just a a mindless shooter even though it has that aspect to it and so they stressed the elements that weren't that yeah. and that probably was effective mm. i have to admit i was not disappointed but it sort of stood out to me that you know it begins with bj baskets waking up from a coma <laughs> again again yeah. like he's a sleepy boy <laughs> like that's, that seems to be the subtext is that he's like awake for 36 hours for the duration of a wolfenstein game then has a big <laughs> sleep actually yeah i'd really like it if you know it's not because he is sustaining some new injuries it's just those old injuries like you wake up from a coma you're all right for like maybe a day but you're going back <laughs> yeah yeah doesn't mean he gets another <clears throat> sequence in which he kills loads of nazis in a you know hospital gown with his bum hanging out, <laughs> his <ass> hanging out <laughs> yeah. in one case kill lots of nazis while apparently like doing a bum slide along a conveyor belt <laughs> yeah, with a shotgun somehow. in each hand <laughs> <laughs> sure he got there <laughs> it's weird that they've made that character so likable yeah like it's he's sort of he's sort of weird folksy wisdom and strange philosophizing and mm. anger and like john cena's face yeah exactly with john cena's face yeah excellent right yeah very That's exciting <laughs> yeah well, well so also of the bethesda conference and definitely of interest to us is dishonored to death of the outsider yeah, yeah. very excited about this yeah mm-hmm. which is uh, a standalone expansion for dishonored yeah. like it is coming out separately so expand alone i so i knew there was some dlc coming um or i knew something was coming and i thought it was dlc but it turns out to be this um and that's so that's really exciting that it's standalone not because obviously i own the game <laughs> but uh that suggests it's going to be of substantial length um mm. like more than two hours i would think I was wondering um, if it was going to be equivalent to like all of the Dowd stuff from Dishonored One, so Knife of Dawnwall and Brigmore Witches, hmm. so back to back rather than yeah, just one of those things. And you are uh, Megan Foster, mm. uh, aka well, okay, so this is a mild spoiler for Dishonored. Yeah, so this so. is really funny. <laughs> so, Tom, have you finished Dishonored? I haven't. No. Okay, uh, mm. Dishonored Two. Dishonored Two. Does it matter? Probably it, not it's a huge. Going to be hard to avoid. In fact, if you've read an interview about it, I'm. I feel like you will have had the information yeah, communicated worry. to you. Already so, like they asked and it was funny because this was on, it was interesting watching Twitter to see who obviously hadn't played through the end of Dishonored 2. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yes, and they can't potentially hold on to this as a spoiler now because they're basing a expansion around it. But yeah. so Megan Foster, who is um, the captain of the ship in Dishonored 2 yeah. is Billy Lurk. Um, who is ah, Dowd's second in command in cool. the Knife of Dawnwall DLC? Right. So she, you, you can figure this out like very early in Dishonored Two, but it's she tells you at the end. Basically, oh, cool. it'd be kind of amazing if they just they tried to keep the secret and they promoted this whole expansion just saying you play as ship captain Megan Foster yeah, doing exactly. sailory things, and she knows <laughs> Dowd no for some life. reason. <laughs> it, one interesting thing they've given them, sort of interesting problem is that it's like so. Dowd is obviously a quite has always been quite a strong character for them, and and Big More Witches ended up being very important for Dishonored Two, 
um, Billy Lurk was just one of those characters that kind of like people liked um, mm. in different, um, and then she came back. But both of them um, are a million different forms of quantum dead in that, <laughs> in that universe now. So they're obviously establishing a sort of canon where both Dowd and Billy Lurk have survived to yeah. do this thing. But, you know, basically, you know, Dowd can kill Billy Lurk in Knife of Dunwall. Corvo can kill Dowd in Dishonored. Um, I think you can kill Megan yep. in Dishonored yeah. 2. Um, <laughs> it's, it took me a while to realize that because I don't think there's any... Re- oh, no. There, yeah, okay. There kind of is a reason you might. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I just discovered, oh, she's attackable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's how all murders happen. <laughs> yeah. Quick save. Try it. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know... But also she has... So in this expansion, she has a, a missing eye and a missing arm, which she also does in... Um, Mm. Uh, in Dishonored 2 but even that is not necessarily the only way that the, the plot can go uh, so yeah obviously they have to just pick a, uh, a an outcome although like the running theory before this was announced was that um, the sort of the obvious DLC for them to do seemed to be that you play as Megan Foster before the events of, mm. of Dishonored 2 and have a kind of prequel but they're not doing that that's true like I thought you know obviously this it's called Death of the Outsider the Outsider is in Dishonored 2 so it, it can't be a prequel mm. but also the um <laughs> The trailer that they put out ends with Megan kind of opening the doors to wherever Dowd is, and that is her epilogue scene in Dishonored Two. So, like, you know, uh, right. there's a piece of art the, over the credits of Dishonored Two. There's like art showing various world state things, and one of yeah. them is one of them is Megan opening a door, and Dowd is there. So, so the uh, thing about the expansion is that your mission is to kill the outsider. Mm. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> I saw a lot of people actually really upset about that. Saying, oh, really? I don't want to kill the outsider. I'm in that camp, I think, of mm. people who are a little bit... Well, I, I'm sort of... I think it's extremely poignant to want to kill the outsider, but... Yeah, I hope they go through with it, both because I don't like the outsider as a character, but also because it's just um, uh, nice to, to put a bow on it. Like, just uh, mm. for any given... I hope there'll be a Dishonored 3, um, but... I don't like it when a series never moves forwards and can't do away with any part of it and sees it mm. all as like, oh, the format is this. So it would be nice to uh, and it's, it's sort of, shift it. There's like... It's interesting, like, they're the perfect two characters to be doing that. Um, because I do I do like The Outsider and I like the role plays in the story. And that's that's actually largely in part to um, a couple of brilliant pieces of writing by Hazel Monforton, who did an article about sort of interpreting The Outsider slightly differently for PC mm. Gamer, um, but who's also a writer on this. So hopefully they can bring in a few more of those sort of um you know make some of the i think some of the, the underlying themes that make the outsider more than just a magic man who dispenses magic powers mm. um bring that through but like it's sort of implicit in the story of design is the fact that you know the outsider empowers people who either you know do good things with the powers that he gives them or do terrible things with the powers that he gives them he sort of provides the means for people to get revenge but he doesn't actually sort of steer any of that and in that story the person who basically fucks up being given the outsider's powers the most is probably Dowd. Like of all the people who, um, like you know, obviously there are you can do a playthrough as Corvo or as Emily where they turn out to be total fuck ups. But mm. Dowd basically is like he has the choice. Yes, he he can go on a, a you know a mission to redeem himself after he's killed the Empress at the beginning of Dishonored One, but he always does that. Mm. So of all the people who might go, I'm you know when he says at the end of that trailer like you know. And we're going to kill the bastard that's responsible for all this chaos. It's like, well, 
you're a bit responsible <laughs> for all this care <laughs> you know like it's kind of your fault like it wasn't his fault that he gave you magical powers and you decided to just get become a murderer for hire and stab the empress to death interestingly the in this expansion uh her powers are not the result of the outsider um mm. or the powers that she uses in the expansion are the result of like a magical replacement arm and eye uh, that are made of artifacts that let her do crazy oh. different things which might be like a conscious rejection of the outsider's pack gifts in mm. favor of other others that she can use to kill him yeah maybe that's why she's being sent to kill him because if dow did maybe the outsider could just deactivate sort of, him yeah switch yeah. him off yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sleep bummer <laughs> uh, and uh, some of her powers sound really cool so there's a an interview that harvey smith did with ign where he describes her equivalent as of blink as being displacement where she uh picks i think a person i'm not sure if she could do this with objects maybe that's an upgrade thing uh, and she sort of displaces them just occupies their space i'm not sure if it swaps them or whether it she takes their place in which case what the fuck happens to the person she uh, <laughs> oh man I, I really hope it's swapping and i, yeah, I suspect that's the kind of thing they'll do because yeah, it leads yeah. to so much cool stuff the overlap between dishonored mechanics and heat signature mechanics is getting larger because <laughs> uh the whole thing of like dow's thing of pausing whilst blinking um has ended up being a like pausing whilst choosing where to go is is a key part of heat signature but also is just shitloads of teleport mechanics and also one of them is a swapper where you switch places with <laughs> a, a person yeah, it's really exciting. Um, I, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how much of because they they merged parts of Dowd's skill set into Corvos mm. through the upgrade tree and Dishonored yeah. Two, like his pause blink and things. So it'd be interesting mm. to see if he gets new stuff. Is he playable oh. or is he uh, Dowd? Yeah, I don't know because mm. I, I wondered if they were going to have two protagonists again. But uh, there was something in the uh, press release about a uh, new game plus where you can play with some of the powers from Dishonored 2, I think. Mm. Uh, it didn't... I think the implication was it was still Megan, but you can use some of... After you completed it, you can then have some of the Dishonored 2 powers as well. Cool. Mm. There's no reason. I mean, they, they, they experimented successfully with allowing you to just mix and match Corvo and Emily powers. Yeah. And I still that's... haven't actually done you know, another playthrough since then and found out how that pans out. Because that's something that's really interesting. Do we know when it's out, roughly? I can't remember if they... This, it's, uh, they did say it's September. Oh, great. So it's cool. not too far off. Really so yeah, actually, yeah, so the end of the year is now filling up with mm. stuff that we'll inevitably do spoiler casts about. <laughs> Hopefully a shorter one. But yeah, that's really exciting. I, I like uh, just them bringing back that particular uh, re-recording of what should we do with the drunken whaler yeah. for the beginning of that trailer was very... I... It looks like it's set in Donwall, for one thing, or mm. at least mostly in Donwall. By pure chance, um, I had watched the Drunken Whaler trailer again recently. The Whaler trailer. <laughs> the Whaler trailer. Um, and man, it's beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> it's just such trailer. a perfect do, piece of... I did also love their, um, their use of and a, a cover of um, Fleetwood Mac's Godless Woman for the Dishonored 2 trailer the year mm. uh, last year. I love that. I mean, I love that album. So that, but um, I can't remember what I thought of the music, but I that the, the sort of weird mix of live action and CG was bit jarring for me oh that wasn't the live action trailer oh, okay. that was for the the like the it was the gameplay trailer for last oh, year's right. e3 um oh yeah like the first one they showed the first they it was, showed a bit. was it? yes <laughs> it was not the it wasn't the announcement it wasn't oh, okay. the cg announcement it was the yeah it was the one with has loads of bits from the game in it and it has yeah has got this one by foot back which i thought was a really good music choice they um they get those those uh covers done like that's not they don't um oh, those right. aren't like existing covers of those i mean obviously the drunken whaler one was obvious because it was the words of drunken sailor were changed to be dishonored but um but no that it was really hard to track down that 
Goldust Woman cover. Problems you have if you are sufficiently <laughs> interested in just pretending you're in a Dishonored trailer all the time. <laughs> yeah, the assassination game that was revealed was uh, Assassin's Creed Oranges. Mm. Yeah, it's very orange as well. Yep. Very orange as Egypt orange is yellowy. in the past. They are. This is the one... Um, since they said, oh, we're not going to do an annual instalment because we want to take a step back and really reevaluate the series yeah. and, and make sure it's um, not sure about that significant really. break. Yeah, it hasn't really um, uh, blown us away with how different it is from the Assassin's Creed formula. The main thing that's different seems to be RPG mechanics, which is like, uh, if you, uh, before this, if you'd asked me, does Assassin's Creed have an RPG mechanics? I would have been like, uh, I think so. <laughs> Um, it, has, but this is, it has tower defense for heaven's sake like yeah, exactly. every other mechanic it's on like, the way to there they took a step back and they thought oh, well you know the problem with Assassin's Creed is it's, it's trying to be almost every other game maybe it could be all other games <laughs> including Skyrim we needed um, to step back so we could get a bigger run up <laughs> yeah. at doing every game so you find um, your character has uh, seems to be sort of specialising in bows as well as melee weapons and they, they make a huge deal of uh, being able to use bows in in the middle of a fight and mm-hmm. so it's like it's a hockey basically you kind of you hit it and you fire your bow and there's a shotgun bow there's a, a smg bow because <laughs> there's one that fires multiple arrows in a spread which is the shotgun one and then there's one that fires five arrows rapidly without having to draw the string back again and i'm like wow <laughs> that's not really a bow then is it <laughs> and then there's a sniper bow that's really long range unless you zoom in <laughs> um uh but uh, in the gameplay that i've seen um you find uh you know uh these weapons and they have damage values you know it tells you this one does uh i think mm. they've had a shield that did like 576 defense and then the next one did 840 defense and so it's those kind of numbers it's like almost mmorpg numbers um and enemies have levels and it'll warn you when enemies are too high level and if you uh are trying to do a stealth attack on someone uh, it's only an insta-kill if they're sort of roughly your level. If they're way above you, it doesn't insta-kill them. It just does a bunch of damage, um, which is a big... Uh, that's that's probably the biggest change, I would say. Like mm. that's That was previously sort of part of the philosophy of the whole series was that, you know, mm. stealth kill is... A knife in the neck is a knife in the neck yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And there's a part of me that thinks, oh, God, you can't take that away. That's the, <laughs> that's the essence of stealth games. But there's another part of me that thinks that it is... It does make it kind of flat to have that, that rule. if Because it, it is true that basically, you know, uh, the only thing they could vary in Assassin's Creed was just more guards, I guess. <laughs> like, there wasn't really... Putting a roof above somebody so you can't fall on them. Yeah. Um, whereas this lets them give a bit of kind of texture to the world and there can be areas that are scary to go into and uh, things that you can't take on yet. So that might be kind of satisfying. Um, I'm, I'm sort of... I have an open mind to it. Um, and Egypt's a cool place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I, look around that. I think I said on the podcast, like, if, if a month or two ago, like, one thing I'd really like from the Assassin's Creed series is a proper combat system because it's never really had one. It's mm. always just been like a counter and insta-kill kind of power fantasy thing. And then I saw their new combat system in this and I was like, oh, not like that. A <laughs> <laughs> um, weird kind of very strange, unrealistic dodge moves. And, yeah. um, the game pauses Zelda style with every strike. It's actually quite a lot like Zelda. Yeah, like, it looks weirdly, like Zelda like. like Even things like um, there's a bit in the in the trailer where he like leaps off something and then goes into slow-mo with the bow in midair which mm. is directly yeah. from breath of the wild like that whole mechanic is just in that game so i mean and breath of the wild is a, a brilliant game i don't know if it's necessarily the right fit for assassin's creed because it's a very different fantasy like link bopping a goblin is not but I mean, all the movements 
were very cartoon in a way that just didn't fit the kind of hyper-realistic Assassin's Creed style. So watching a guy uh, like strafe dodge in the semicircle sideways 90, to get 90 degrees around an opponent looks super weird uh, when it's not Link doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the kind of uh, repeatedly hitting guys and having this the screen pause and the weapon leaving, leaving like a glowing red trail, again, is just so kind of weirdly fiction-breaking for that series, which has yeah, always yeah. been about, like... What's the fact that, like, so the thing we didn't mention is you have an eagle? Or is it oh, yeah. oh, yeah, a psychic eagle. A psychic eagle, mm. straight out of Far Cry Primal, that just sits on your shoulder and then flies up in the sky and can scout for you. But it's got, it's basically got, like, the UAV targeting reticle from <laughs> Call of Duty, like, mm. like, you know, the frame within the frame thing with the the the, the, the cursor in the middle... I was like, why do it that way? Like, you, they did sort of eagle vision in the previous games, was sort of very specific and washed out the screen in a particular way and was designed yeah. in a way that you wouldn't want to control the game from that perspective. Um, it's not subtle, but, you know, it had a very specific effect. Whereas this is like, it almost felt like a high-tech gadget. Yeah, I think there's a button to pause the eagle in midair. Yeah. And so you can scan things better. So it, it is a drone. It's a fucking drone. It's not an eagle, <laughs> is it, at that stage? Yeah, I saw that. And um, yeah, the... the the view goes inside the eagle, so you're seeing the eagle's point of view, because mm. uh, normally it's third person when you're flying the eagle, um, and then it, it stops exactly where it is, and I couldn't tell whether time had paused or whether the eagle has just stopped in midair. It's just like hovering, <laughs> yeah. Um, Eagles can't hover, can they? No, no. no they they can, I think if there's like a strong wind coming at them, like most birds can do that thing where they just... They, you know, they ride the, yeah. the updraft. Mm. Okay, yeah, but they can't, like, just stop and flap a lot. Maybe, but it is there. a psychic owl, so maybe it can summon a wind to blow against it so mm. that it can stay still for a bit. And maybe it's odd to complain about this stuff in a sort of fantasy series about a man who plugs into genetic memories <laughs> to relive. Mm. But but at the same time, like, uh, the game the game still establishes a certain degree of realism in its presentation that these things undermine. Yeah, I think the, the, the final shot of that demo where he fires the arrow at the fleeing target and then oh, yeah. you realise about halfway through the arrow's flight that he's controlling the arrow like like the Redeemer missile from, <laughs> from Unreal Tournament. Mm. And he sort of flies it into the back of the guy's head and it looks really, really silly. Yeah. Like, I don't mind doing the, you know, I don't mind the game going, okay, you've just fired the arrow that will kill the target, so we're going to now go slow-mo. You do the, you know, the XCOM style, the Sniper Elite style, mm. follow the bullet thing. That would be a perfectly cool. reasonable thing to add to Assassin's Creed. Mm. But the fact that I realised, oh, you're controlling the arrow now with your mind like mm, yeah i don't know there's um the ui for like swapping out gear and stuff looks a lot like destiny, destiny. yeah everyone's gonna rip that off did you see that um luke smith who is the uh lead designer for destiny 2 um was on destiny 1 as well tweeted when that was revealed during the microsoft conference what a great ui <laughs> <laughs> which was as close to full-on dev snark as i've seen yeah, it at c3 yeah. i think but yeah yeah i'm so so on that i mean it'll be a spectacle but i worry about it it's always been a very bloated series and it mm. feels like they haven't really learned anything from so i think this was this was the e3 that i might, might have been a bit grumpy watching the, X, the xbox conference but this is the e3 i realized that like i genuinely don't have time for a lot of these games now you know like if they announced that they were rebooting assassin's creed and kind of simplifying it and making it this is a game about assassinations in a historical open world and we're going to just make that really really strong and then mm. not worry so much about all the surrounding stuff and they kind of gone the opposite direction yeah i'd be much more excited about it and that's been a sort of a uh kind of a resounding general rule for a lot of the bigger games i think um what i did want to talk about was anthem which mm. is the yeah. sort of the reveal of what bioware have been doing 
And so it was teased at the EA conference, just with sort of what it is, which is a it's a sci-fi setting that looks a lot like Destiny. It looks a lot like Titanfall, and it looks a lot like sort of Attack on Titan. Hmm. So I think Attack on Titanfall is the head, <laughs> is the um, is the you know strapline. Hmm. But there is a big wall, right? There, so there's a very big wall. Beyond the wall are beasts and a sci-fi landscape, and on top of the wall or behind the wall is a sort of human civilization. And people, aka players, venture out into the wild in kind of mech suits, um, but not like mechs, more like power armor, to yeah. nick a joke from Saints Row, um, that um, have like um, sort of different classes and abilities and things. But like, you are quite a humanoid robot. You can fly, which is cool. You're mm-hmm. quite a humanoid mech, though. So you're not really running around like you're in a stompy robot, Titanfall style. You're in a. Yeah, the power suit. The flying is like Superman flying. Yeah, you sort of you fly headfirst and um, seems to be limitless. Just mm. and pretty fast, and it looks gorgeous. Like the yeah. technical yeah, it execution of it looks phenomenal. Um, it's like a jungle area that we saw mm. in the um, in the full reveal, and yeah, it was like I'm always a little bit. Um, Particularly because they made such a huge deal of the Xbox One X, which is a fucking hilarious that is That is the stupidest fucking thing. <laughs> they just can't do names. Um, and they made such a huge deal of that. And then all the, all the demos they showed were running on uh, on Xbox One X. And like 90% of them, I just go, oh, is that impressive? It doesn't seem at all impressive to me. It seems like if you showed me this five years ago, I wouldn't have batted an eyelid. And uh, Anthem was the only thing I saw. It was like, oh, shit, actually, that looks really good. <laughs> it looks amazing. And then so when they actually formally revealed like the game proper... They showed, you know, a sort of first-person sequence in a town. Very impressive facial animation, which might be Bioware going, look at the faces <laughs> um, of a man uh, sort of asking you to go and do something in the wild. And you get a quest and you go and suit up and you're talking to other characters and it looks looks fantastic. And then it you go up in the lift with your robot suit and then it segues into multiplayer co-op. Um, and then they did very forced, weird for a Bioware game. It segues from obviously real dialogue, where presumably you might also have choices to make or something like that, Bioware style, into forced scripted conference banter. Yeah, like so they're trying to pretend that players are playing this and talking to each other, but yeah. the players are so professional and so uh, well performed that it can only be actors. Yeah, like, and it, it's very false feeling. Ubisoft did that a lot for a couple of years, mm. pointedly stopped yeah. this year, and everyone else started doing it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is the chatter in that first division trailer, which I feel like uh, almost coined this uh, style of presentation, um, is so similar to the chatter in, in Anthem that you could literally just switch them and I don't think you'd notice. Because yeah. all of the words they're saying are just made up. Oh, cool. I found a thing. Steve would love that. Oh, hey, it's Steve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but also, like, it's even, uh, I think, a special filter they put on it, too, to kind of, it sounds like radio chatter. And obviously, when you are talking over a mic of voice over OP, there is a bit of distortion and stuff, but it's not this distortion. This yeah. is cool distortion. Like in world distortion, somehow. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's actually just it's the echo in your beautiful San Francisco apartment where this is, <laughs> where this is implicitly happening. Um, yeah, it's, I was pretty disappointed by that. And that partly that's because I have a destiny. Yeah. <laughs> like, if it's a game where you go off. <laughs> we all have a destiny. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, as in, you know what I mean. And like, uh, so I have, you know, there's a game I'm already excited about playing where you go on missions with your friends and I'm, it's made by people who are far more, I'm far more confident can make a shooter that's rewarding for a long time. 
Um, because there are, you know, still games I'm willing to make those kinds of time investments in. Destiny's kind of rewarded me for that time investment, so I'm happy to offer it. But the big thing is that, like, this uh, this has been, you know, in the works for a long time. Bioware have been, uh, you know, I, I follow a lot of the Bioware writers' room on Twitter, and um, you sort of seen people kind of, like, vanish onto the new IP for for periods at a time and then go back to, I think they're making a new Dragon Age and then onto Andromeda and then onto other projects and things like that. And so... This is my fault, but I had it in my head that Bioware were making some new Bioware thing we we didn't know about, which in my head was like, what if this new thing is the new Mass Effect, like something I end up loving? Because I remember when Mass Effect was announced, and I was hoping for Knights of the Old Republic, and they announced something I'd never seen before, and it ended up being one of my favorite game series of all time. Um, the fact that they're just not making a Bioware game, as far as I'm concerned, hmm. is... I mean, obviously, I have to wait and see the benefit of the doubt and see if they announce, oh, I'd, basically, I just don't think they would lead with with multiplayer co-op missions and loot and quests in the open world if that wasn't the game. If it was actually a single-player game about, you know, going on an adventure with companions and choices and a plot primarily, I presume that's what they would have shown. And if they were also going to talk about the fact that there's a co-op, that would have been secondary, if that makes sense. Mm. At this point, it seems too late for them to say oh, by the way, it's also a Bioware game as you understand it. So yeah, yeah I was pretty mm. bummed out about that. My main reaction was that uh, it was really uh, impressive to look at. Um, really liked the look of the combat. It looked really satisfying. Um, and I'm well up for a new world. Um, and I just kept thinking, I hope I can just play this by myself. <laughs> as long as I can do that. I don't care if it's not the optimal experience or the intended experience, as long as that's like viable. Mm. For sure. I mean, and to be fair, I loved Knights of, um, sorry, Star Wars The Old Republic for the time that I did play it. Like, they have successfully merged those kinds of things into other games before. So yeah. maybe I'm being a bit harsh. I think it's just, I think also the other thing is that when they were talking about a new IP, I thought there was a real opportunity for them to do something that, that isn't that familiar. Hmm. Um, and maybe when they were planning this, because I think this has been in the works since Mass Effect 3 wrapped up, maybe when they were planning this, there weren't a million sort of kind of gritty alien style technology sci-fi games about defending uh last bastion of humanity against an alien threat that is the other side of a big wall but there's quite a lot of them now yeah and um you know it's one of those things it's you know we'll get onto it it's the reason all the pirate games are showing up at the same time yeah but like this, this did actually feel like even more so than previous years the e3 of convergence where everyone shows their hand and they're like oh shit we're all making the same things yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. like three games and we're all making one of those three games but i, I think like when yeah, you kind of kick off a project like Anthem, they're going to know that Titan was in the works at Blizzard and that Destiny was in the works, you know, at Bungie. And they're going to be like, what's our answer to that? Yeah. And this is just the time they happen to reveal it. And Bioware, the studio, they seem to have been told to make it. Yeah. <laughs> so it just doesn't seem to play to their strengths. I mean, I've, I've, I enjoyed third, third person combat in Mass Effect 3 and Andromeda, but it wouldn't sustain a whole game for me. No. Uh, it has to have the extra layer of good kind of lovely narrative bioware stuff that i I enjoy Mm. without that and if it's not you know significantly improving on that then dead in the water as far as i'm concerned which is a very very harsh thing to say about a thing that's just been announced but yeah those are the stakes it is it is it has set itself goals that i'm interested in yeah that's that's i think the problem with it like um i hope it turns out really good and hopefully Mm. it'll be fun to run around in for a bit yeah but i have it's that thing of i've been through this journey enough times that like I'm not excited at the moment. I don't see a reason to be excited about hour a hundred mm. grinding for the next level up, getting ready for the raid, whatever ends up being, you know, like I think games like that 
increasingly have a um well not responsibility but it, it would be good if they can show their roadmap because they're asking so much from players in terms of time uh, mm. that you know if it's going to vanish in a year or two years or it's not going to get any follow-up um like destiny was always kind of fairly upfront about saying you know a couple of expansions a sequel a couple of expansions a sequel so you you know it's a long-term endeavor like a decade-long thing that yeah said. yeah and the anthem games like anthem kind of need to come out and say that because otherwise i I will play the thing I know will be supported um and rather than gambling on this thing that could you know splutter out after six months, yeah were any other studio making it? I'd probably be like, oh yeah, it looks fine. Oh, mm. I'll be excited to try it out. Oh, well, it looks it visually it's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. I'm happy to try it out. But because it's like, oh, this is what BioWare were doing, it's that's why it's more mm. of a kind of like, oh. Yeah, I was hoping for like a modern world RPG, but I don't know yeah. where I got that from. I just invented that in my head. So. There was there was a rumor for a while. <laughs> right. Like that was there was rumored for a while that then you think I, I know what it was. It's because do you remember that thing they cancelled? Yeah. The, the thing that looked a bit like the secret world. The co-op DM versus DM uh, yeah. experiment they did, yeah. A lot of the the, the sort of the, a couple of years ago the rumor pathways got crossed and people thought that meant that their new big sort of big IP was going to be sort of like modern world with magical elements mm. which again would be really interesting to see them do like yeah yeah or any studio do well because I've been watching American Gods recently and mm. it's just such a visually rich idea that you know I've not really seen done in games very well beyond like the secret world trailers yeah yeah so the, the, the game massively failed to deliver on any of that um, but someone else could. Yeah, I think I was just, I was so hoping for something that I was like, oh shit, like they haven't done this before. Mm. Like, I want to, yeah, I want Bioware to make an X-Files game, basically. Like, mm. I think, or something, you know what I mean? Where you're like, oh shit, I want to, I want to do something in the real world or I want... Like a police procedural, just yeah. anything really. Anything yeah, you, yeah, exactly. Anyway, um, moving on, um, we should talk about Beyond Good and Evil 2. Oh yeah. Because mm. that's also got open world multiplayer elements this uh, though michelle ansel has subsequently clarified that i think it's open world and this is sort of like almost a gta yeah all that well, he wants it to when it exists which it doesn't yet i'm certain <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> although there's that beta thing this summer though apparently oh, that okay. people are signing up yeah. for so um space monkey program. and there was um i think there was some screenshots and things in there yeah because they've they've re they've restarted development on beyond good and evil 2 several times as far as the rumors yeah. i've heard and that that actually gives me some faith in this. I've seen. Oh, right. Do you mean restarted as in started from scratch e- or resumed? Don't know enough to know, but I wouldn't be surprised if they've thrown out some ideas because it's been, what, 16 years? <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's interesting. So I really like the trailer and the tone it establishes and the, the style it establishes. And I'm fine with it being very different, but I'm interested to see what people see because I've seen a lot of. Given that it's it's the big announcement, it's the the Half Life three that people were waiting for. <laughs> um, I saw a lot of very disappointed people on Twitter with the direction they've chosen to take with it. If yeah, you like the first game, it's a a disaster tonally. Um, <laughs> I don't mind. I don't mind what it is at all. I think it's like really colourful and quite exciting. I think it's kind of lame, quite obnoxious delivery um, in that particular trailer. But I think, but I buy into the vision they've, they're putting forward. But if you're interested in the Beyond Good and Evil universe, and obviously they're trading on that directly with the name, <laughs> then that you're going to be like, what is this? Um, why is the pig calling that monkey a fucking bastard? And why is that monkey going bang, bang, motherfucker, and shooting over the back of his head with a, with a rifle? It's just, uh, it's almost like a, a tone thing as much as anything else. Yeah, I saw uh, the reactions I saw on Twitter was just like a huge excitement as it was announced because it, it was a cold trailer. They didn't say what it was until... Yeah. Um, until afterwards, but of course it was opening on a big pig guy, <laughs> and so you're really thinking, "Wait, is that yeah. is that Paige from the first game?" Um, and then it's not. 
but uh, still thinking, hmm, it still seems like Beyond Good and Evil 2. Um, and so, like, huge excitement. And then afterwards, yeah, since then, I've just seen uh, a sort of uh, succession of um, of negative comments, 100% of them about the swearing. <laughs> like, just they're all just, this does not feel like the tone that... Yeah, which is weird, because I love swearing. It's brilliant. Um, <laughs> I have to say, I didn't actually notice it. I'm not, like, a huge Beyond Good and Evil fan. I played it. I don't think I finished it. I think I played, you know... A, a number of hours um and i quite like what i played but it was i was mostly it's kind of into the characters and not really actually playing it that much <laughs> like the the actual combat and stuff was not super interesting to me um and watching this it's been so long i i guess i don't really remember the tone of the first game but mm-hmm. it didn't didn't jump out to me as as wrong or bad i think it's because a lot of people it was so long ago it, when people played it they were like teenagers or even like kids and it's an amazing kids game, Beyond Good and Evil 1. Like it, it's just full of life and energy and it's just really pleasant, lovely world. Mm. And it's, there's kind of like, obviously there are bad guys and things, but it's a very you know, good versus evil Saturday morning cartoon <laughs> sort of story with, all that. With, um, with photography and you photograph a whale and then you go get your thing repaired and then you do a stealth bit. And it's, it's a, it was a very kind of light touch and lighthearted game. And what they showed at E3 was a completely different thing, mm. which is fine. And I kind of, dig what they've done um what they're doing if they hadn't have called it beyond good and evil they could have saved themselves a lot of trouble <laughs> with I think, the fans of the original i think there's a thing where it's like it's interesting this is an interesting thing about sequels generally particularly long-awaited sequels is like what do you want the continuation of the thing you liked do you, or do you want the next thing from the person who made that thing yeah and this feels like i think it, had it been ubisoft had given this to a new team after michelle ansel hadn't made a sequel yeah and this is what they'd made i'd I might share some of those misgivings, but because, you know, he's been working on this apparently forever or in one form or another, mm. if this is what the sort of, I don't know, that that original creative team wants to make as Beyond Good and Evil 2, then I'm willing to kind of just go like, okay, cool, go with this. Like, there's a reason you've made these decisions. I look forward to finding out what they are. Yeah, no one's saying they shouldn't have done it. It's just that that's going to attract some eye. I did see one person say, cancel this game immediately. So, <laughs> well, people are saying that. He, saying that. <laughs> so, so, yeah. like, Yeah, I mean, obviously that's unnecessary. But I, I, it looks fucking astonishing uh, in terms of just an art direction perspective. Yeah, I think that's something uh, really charmed me. Uh, especially like the when the spaceship takes off and it kind of folds up and it's this kind of almost a mix of like Mexican Day of the Dead meets like it's a massive skull and crossbones like hmm. pirate wheel she's got just driving it but kind of matched with just uh a, a kind of riot of multicultural ideas meeting hmm. in an urban space like that's that's really exciting the idea of actually kind of parkouring around that and doing deals and stealing stuff because you seem to be like a band of outlaws uh is is potentially exciting but i reserve all judgment because a it's a very troubled project and b you know it's easy to put lots of money into a trailer like that and get everyone's hopes up. Yeah. And until you actually see what actually you're doing minutes a minute in the game. Yeah, for it's, sure. It's definitely not worth getting too excited. It had a bit that. of um, the vibe of like the fifth element mm, and yeah. also, uh, funnily enough, Prey 2, the bounty hunter one that was oh, yeah. uh, ditched. Like that, that thing of just being in a sort of, you know, a, an environment with no ground, basically. Um, that, that In that sense, actually, it does feel a little bit on trend because we were, you know, we were talking before we started recording about how games are ever four years behind where other media are and you know um luke besson has a film out soon valerian's coming out soon yeah. which is 
similar tonally and, and visually as well. And there's a sort of, I don't know, it felt, it felt like one of the most sort of visually inventive and modern looking worlds for a game. I'm not going to say games because we didn't see the game, mm. but like game world kind of concept pieces of anything that yeah, was that out is. this year. So I'm excited for it simply on that basis, I think. It's interesting. I feel like this was almost an example, probably at a lesser scale of exactly what would happen if they announced Half-Life 3. Which is there'd be mental crying in the aisles happiness, <laughs> followed by utter "this isn't the specific thing I wanted" mm. disappointment. What's weird is that um, the head of Ubisoft came out and said the reason why they showed Beyond Good and Evil to this year was to elicit feedback from the audience, and if it's just a feedback exercise, then that game is nowhere near. Like I'm amazed mm. it's playable. <laughs> the only, well, the only reason is because I think I think he meant literally like feedback, as in it's time for people to stop playing it. Because they, they the whole thing was about the announcement of that mm. beta program, right? So I assume that means that that's what he was referring. I assume that's what he was referring to. It's mm. like it's time for us to get signups and get people playing it. Yeah. So hopefully it does exist. We shall. <laughs> we see. shall see. I hope so. Very skeptical. Yeah. I hope to be wrong. Next up on the list, and it is a long list. And we've done it in basically no order. <laughs> is um, well, so Destiny Two had a small presence at the Sony thing, mostly to do with PS4 exclusives. Mm. The bigger thing that has come out is a release date for the PC version of Destiny, which is October, yeah. which is good news because it means it's not going to follow the console version by much more than a month. Which mm. is, you know, I was worried about the six month wait kind of yeah for sure deal. Yeah, that's not too bad, and I think as long as the the releases are on parity after that. Mm. Uh, in terms of expansions and updates, then job done, really. That's yeah, fine. for sure. Does this? Uh, do you have any inkling now where you're going to go? Which direction you're going to go? Uh, well, I'll definitely play both because I have to play Destiny on PC for work. Um, <laughs> and I think I'll sort of like organically see how it shakes out, see mm. where people end up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe hopefully, I'll it won't same. split my friend group. It might though. <laughs> I think I will. I'm still probably going to PS4 mm. first. But... I'll definitely play it on September the eighth, sixth. Actually, it is now. They moved the release date up slightly nice yeah exciting also coming to pc perhaps unexpectedly is monster hunter which i don't think it's ever been on pc before mm, and i've so. never played all i know is that a lot of people i know are <laughs> obsessed with it yeah i was saying earlier one of the things i get out of e3 is um if you just release but all these trailers individually uh then i'll just watch the ones i'm interested in and maybe a couple i've never heard of uh for sake of experimentation but when you watch like a big conference um you just watch everything pretty much unless there's a whole slew of sports in a row mm. <laughs> which goes you eventually tune out but uh yeah uh, at the the sony thing um i again most of these like cold opens where you don't know what what the thing is until um uh until the end and I watched the whole Monster Hunter trailer not knowing what the hell it was at all. <laughs> and at the end, I was like, oh, that's Monster Hunter. I guess I've never seen Monster Hunter before. <laughs> and now it's going to be on PC. It, this is cool because... Um, thanks. Um, because our friend Alex Wiltshire, uh, we were talking about... I think we were talking about Horizon Zero Dawn, actually, <laughs> which we both love. Um, and he was saying, oh, I wish it was a bit, a bit more Monster Hunter-y. And I'm like, I don't know that phrase. <laughs> and now I all know that phrase. Mm. Yeah, it's an odd one. I've played it. It's on um, 3DS and probably uh, there are so many Monster Hunter games. Um, it's uh, really good with friends and it's about just going out and hunting enormous monsters with just weapons that are about three times your size 
and kind of comboing and cooperating and then uh, taking all the bones out of the monster and turning it into an even bigger weapon. <laughs> uh, and that basically that uh, loot kind of grind element continues for ages and ages. But it's really quirky. It's got a good sense of humor and uh, it's really bright and vivid and the monster designs are really exciting. And none of that was evident in the trailer they showed. Yeah, it's um, like dinosaurs. Which is big T-Rexes. <laughs> and some of them are big T-Rexes and dragons in Monster Hunter, but you also fight like crazy huge spiders and multi-tier um, boss arenas with webbing and stuff like that. Like there's loads of... Um, a lot of the excitement of Monster Hunter is in how uh, vivid the the creatures are, and you mm. get to learn all their attack buttons and their foibles and the stuff they drop, and you almost gain like a hunter's knowledge of the mm. uh, of this wide open area because uh, you know where all the best spots to find certain animals are and the best spots to find certain materials, and it it becomes like a yeah you become like a ranger, uh, mm. but also a good co op fun times. I am definitely going to hit my limit of games i can play with friends because i already play almost no games with friends and so my limit is very low and they're just this e3 was just like 10 of them that mm. are like you need five play five friends who are all playing this at the same time as you to get the best experience and it also it's an infinitely large game with infinite content and it will consume your life and it's like well it's going to be one of you then <laughs> one of you can has a place in my life and that's all the rest are out of luck it's just yeah. like this is a good time for that kind of thing not on the mmo level but on the sort of like fun experiences that you can jump into and have you know an evening or something of play because hmm. this will bring us on to um sea of thieves um particularly hmm. but we'll get into pirate game town basically hmm. um something that occurred to me uh, playing, I've been, I basically sank a lot more time into player unknown battlegrounds. Um, is like, it's really nice having a game that is it's brilliant with friends. Like, I really like it. Like, since I spoke about it last week on the podcast, it's just gone from like it's gone from like I'm surprised that this early access survivally shootery thing that looks a bit janky is so good, and now it's like actually this is fucking brilliant, hmm. and um, and it's brilliant with other people, um, and. And part of that is because it's not as fraught and intense and strenuous on, you know, people's fun as a pure competitive game is, like a team competitive game, but it, nor is it as long-term demanding as an MMO. It's sort of like a big world that you get to walk around with your friends um, for half an hour, basically, for the limit of a match. And you have an adventure in that time, and then people can drop in and drop out, and the number of people you need to play is relatively flexible. Mm and not that all games need to be player unknown battleground specifically but i think there's a sort of there's a middle ground between ultra short form competitive multiplayer um on the sort of counter-strike game of counter-strike end of the spectrum and super long form co-op where you are playing the same mmo together over the course of weeks and months and gearing up together mm. that is not underserved but like it's super valuable to serve that bracket and that's almost what punk bag is doing and um i saw that in a, f a bunch of things this e3 and it feels like i kind of get the if you don't have friends to play with or you don't regularly play, play with people online it's a bit of a drag but i think if you in a situation for example i've ended up in where i have a sort of you know diasporic dota friend group that we don't necessarily all play that much dota anymore but like everyone wants to play something like these games are perfect like i'm, I'm actually really looking forward to sea of thieves because that's mm. rare's pirate game yeah it looks amazing which Ooh, looks great rare again i know i should know this but... um <laughs> beloved british developer of you know um sort of ratchet and clank no um banjo kazooie, banjo -Kazooie was that. and loads of things hmm. um what else uh diddy kong racing mostly console exclusives mostly n64 games mm. that's why I um 
or and games that look like N64 games. But yeah, um, so yeah, and that this is the sort of you know cartoony pirate experience simulator um, with which mixes sort of like sailing and it's first person, so sailing and PvP and going on adventures on islands and digging things up and that kind of thing. But explicitly not in the context of I think like an MMO where mm. you're all logging in every day to level up, but like let's go on a two-hour pirate yeah. ship adventure kind of thing. Yeah, I. Uh, I like the idea of me one day playing this. I, if you ask me to bet on whether I will end up playing it, I'd probably bet no. <laughs> mm. Just because it seems like it's going to cross some organization and there's going to be a hundred other games that also do. This- but I did... Um, two things I really liked and what they showed of it was um, uh, you can fire yourself from cannons, which I'm a fan of. Mm. Uh, and ultimately, this is a game where you can get aboard an enemy ship, which is kind of my thing. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um and then also, like, during the sea battle, I think I remember noticing this last year now, although I kind of forgot about it until this year, the water in a storm is fucking incredible. It looks great. It's like a mountain range that's moving. Mm. <laughs> it's just absolutely spectacular. It's going to be absolutely massive, I think. I mean, if I was a kid, it would be the yeah, greatest it's going to it's it's going to YouTube's very well. Yeah, <laughs> like, for sure. It was one of the reasons that um, PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds is as big as it is, is because of, mm. because of that factor. Um, I think that's the thing is it's it's scoped really nicely. Like I said last week, that I like a battlegrounds because it feels like Daisy at a manageable timescale that focuses on what was actually viable mechanically about Daisy, mm. not the kind of the mad emergent top level stuff that you dream is possible, but <laughs> the actually what happens in this game level, like practical Daisy, and then and the more games that kind of strike for that, like it looks like it can practically achieve the things it wants players to do, and that's very exciting. Um, and I'm just sort of yeah, I'm sort of excited to. So I'll put it this way. They're games that would make for great PC gamer diary features. Mm. <laughs> like, they're games I can't imagine you playing Tom F unless you were forced to as part of, like, a mag feature. <laughs> but I think you would enjoy them. Like, we, I, was, yeah. I, 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 I think the, I miss most about games journalism is being forced we, to play things that I will ultimately enjoy. <laughs> we just wrote about... Uh, we just did a diary for Battlegrounds last week. <laughs> right. Exactly. In the next issue. Yeah. Um, we'll do one for all of those games. Yeah, it's good but you see what I mean, right? Like, yeah, sure, sort of like sure. Small team goes on an adventure that lasts two hours and could probably be written up to about two and a half thousand words. Yeah, it's because <laughs> they generate stories. To get like, like, really consistently generate stories. I mean, that's, that's the secret, isn't mm. it? Uh, and that's what player on Battlegrounds does very well. And it looks like Sea of Thieves, like everyone who plays it, even for 20 minutes, comes away with, uh, you know, anecdotes. And uh, games as anecdotes generators are my favourite games. Yeah. Mm. So the other um, part two in, in Pirate Geddon was um, Skull and Bones, which is mm. by the team at Ubisoft that made the sailing bits in Black Flag. Um and it is the sailing bits in Black Flag, <laughs> sure but as their own game detached from the the Assassin's Creed universe, which actually, if you're going to talk about ways to revisit what was good and bad about Assassin's Creed, breaking off some of the things it did mm. into their own games is actually not a bad idea at all. Because sure. Assassin's Creed, you know, Black Flag, the best things about it were sailing your pirate ship around mm. and playing the pirate game, which had almost nothing to do with the Boy, Assassin's Creed game it was yeah. trying to also be. Um and this has a multiplayer focus, so they showed a uh, demo of two teams of pirates trying to raid a merchant convoy with basically pirate cops showing up at the end to chase people away. They teased Krakens, why not? <laughs> um, but I thought it looked pretty cool. Like, I like naval combat. Like, yeah. I, I mean, this is obviously at a different scale than uh, than uh, Sea of Thieves because it's not like everyone is an individual crew member on one ship. Everyone is a ship. So a little bit like World of Warships even in, in that mm-hmm. sense. But... There's a, I think there's a lot of untapped potential 
in that Age of Sail kind of combat. It looked nice. Yeah, it looks really pretty. Is it uh, just naval combat? You don't like get off your boat and go board island? I don't or... think so. Mm-hmm. I think it looked like what they showed looked like the naval battles from Black Flag, but without the letting go of the wheel and doing mm. Assassin's <laughs> Parkour stuff. Um, I assume that's how it works. It was often hard to let go of the wheel, and then it was often hard to grab the wheel again when you wanted to. Mm. <laughs> the interaction prompt for that was like context sensitive in some way, and because it was Assassin's Creed, so they're yeah. all yeah yeah, 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 yeah. The button needs to do five million things. It looks like as well that it's um, so there are there are essentially like three kinds of Ubisoft game. There are massive open world, stealthy, shooty assassin things. We have a bow. Mm-hmm. Um, there are rabbits games. <laughs> And there are now relatively um, sort of moderately scoped, very distinctive multiplayer games, competitive multiplayer games. Hmm. So Rainbow Six Siege, For Honor, and now this. And hmm. it seems because it seems to be occupying that category. They mentioned, you know, your your actions will have an effect on the the world, which could just be For Honor's like campaign map system transplanted into a different form of old timey warfare. They said that, and then they just showed, like, the giant kraken eating a ship. Yeah. <laughs> so, is that the consequence? How did I trigger that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just piss off a kraken. <laughs> or a tractor kraken. It's not really clear what the what the motivations of that kraken are, <laughs> to be honest. It was uh, um, someone who's terrified of large undersea creatures, a particularly chilling moment <laughs> of showing that, because they were really do you have, big. Do you have, because I have the same thing, do you have the good fear of large undersea creatures, or the actually bad, this horrible fear of... Uh, I don't like it. Uh, but do you like the good like it a bit? Like, <laughs> so basically, is it like a thrill? Because I have that thing of like, it's terrifying, but like in the good way. It's, yeah, I describe it as like a mixture of awe and fear. Yeah. So it's not 100% negative. It is, it's, there's it, a bit of like, oh my God, it's, look at it's, that it's thing. Like, it's like a, it's sublimity, right? Like I think when the, I'm not in the water, there's a sense of awe. If I was in the water, it would be pure terror. Right. Because yeah, I love that shit. Like, I'm not really into like a lot of traditional horror tropes, but big thing under the sea. Thumbs up from Chris. <laughs> um so yeah if they do if they do it's quite hard to get crack and right in games i think <laughs> I, I can't think of many games that have done a good like undersea encounter yeah i have oh actually speaking of that um assassin's creed origins i watched a bit of the live stream after the main presentation and the undersea encounter he had there actually he was in a lake technically but um it was a hippo and <laughs> he had a spear i guess and the way he, he was swimming and the hippo was like near near enough to pose a threat, I guess. So he went over to attack the hippo and he's underwater and he's using a spear basically like a baseball bat, just sort of swinging it and just like whacking the hippo with the end of it. And the hippo is like, they're both underwater. Neither of them are moving in a graceful way. <laughs> it was one of the most surreal fights I've ever seen in a video game. <laughs> underwater hippo batting. But that is obviously true to the ancestors' memories, Tom. <laughs> yeah, and it's that, vital that you... If you didn't do that, you'd be desynchronized. Yeah, so that exactly. happened. Level fucking... 30 hippo, which is why it took so many <laughs> fucking hits. I mean, just the, like, the idea of swinging anything underwater with enough force to really yeah. do any damage is kind of absurd. Thrusting would be perfect. Let alone would... a spear. Yeah, you've got a spear. You could... Did they explain why it's called Origins? I think it's chronologically the earliest one so far. Oh, yeah, it will yeah. be, yeah. Uh, uh, hmm. Yeah. It's that weird thing where, like, um, the pyramids are way more ancient than you you think. You sort of think of them as like um, 
you know the 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 fun fact thing is that cleopatra lived closer to the time of the moon landing than the time of the pyramids um huh. and that, so there's this huge a gap fact. in history that that you it just gets disregarded it kind mm. of gets all lumped together when hippos ruled the earth <laughs> no history was recorded <laughs> i was like um the fact that a lot of ancient greek monuments and things like the acropolis were probably pretty garishly painted like mm. there's you know there's some good sort of evidence for the kind of pigment that was used to dye the stone paint the stone in that um they would have looked very probably probably very garish from our standards <laughs> and no game set in like ancient greece or any other setting like that ever does anything other than like clean white marble everyone's yeah. in tunics yeah. and i do want the one do want to play the game that does like the full fairground acropolis like <laughs> where it's dyed in whatever colors they can get because that's you know yeah yeah a lot of like i think greek and roman statues that look beautiful now because they, all the paints went off. Like they've done reconstructions of what they were like when they were painted. They kind of look like garbage. <laughs> uh, yeah, suck at the past. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> screw all of you. Um, so next on the list of open world games where you stab people, and make friends is Shadow of War. Mm. They, didn't, oh, yeah. they didn't show loads more of Shadow of War, Mordor, War Door. I'm quite excited about this. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm really excited. I am, but yeah. Of all of the open world stabby games, it's it's the one I'm most excited yeah, about. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yep. I, I saw this at its reveal a couple of months ago now. It was right after I'd gone freelance, actually, um, and spoke to Michael DePlatter about it, who's the guy who was on all of the E3 stages. And I don't think they showed much. They hadn't seen apart from an amazing orc called Bruce. Yeah. The, how do we feel about Bruce? The I love orc? it. Like, so, <laughs> so there's a degree, like, I think at this point, Tolkien is doing like rad kickflips in his grave. <laughs> too late. <laughs> too late for him. Like they haven't, he's not spinning in there. They've set up a little half pipe. For him. <laughs> he's doing cool tricks. And that's great. Cause like, I don't know. Like, I think at some point, you can either be choked by that license into changing nothing. Yeah. Or you can just like, yeah, it's it like, I I basically was trying to find a place to use the phrase silly Marillion, but like, <laughs> like that's, that's what it is. And that's fine. Yeah. Like yeah. there's, I'd rather they did what they thought was fun than try and be like ultimately faithful to Tolkien. Cause there are plenty of other forms of, lord of the rings media doing that they can be the mad rock and roll one yeah it also shows them investing in their most interesting system that no one has stolen yet but in four years every game will have that system <laughs> the nemesis system um and actually making those orcs even more personable giving you more ways to manipulate them uh letting you uh giving you more ways to attack them and assault their castles and this one exciting. so bruce what we saw was uh okay it's about b-r-u-z i believe yeah. uh but he's very australian and so it's hard not to say it bruce um, well, he says bruce as well so. <laughs> uh we saw a fight with against him uh which ended with uh the player sort of mind controlling him and then he turns to um the player side and then there are so many really uh scripted cutscenes after that involving bruce that i think you probably have to do that like you probably right. can't kill bruce i think that, that's got to be part of the critical path is that you have to have bruce on it your felt side. like an early critical path mission to me yeah like, which i teach you about the nemesis system and fortresses yeah normally i wouldn't be wild about but actually i really enjoyed his dialogue and i found it really funny and there was something about so i don't know quite what this quality is whether it's just acting or what <laughs> but that 
from just the first sentence that he says, it's like, oh shit, they've got an actor here. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. This is an actual performance. This is not someone, particularly in a fantasy game, you just expect everything to be, and the prophecy foretold that we must do this, or yeah. we will meet on the battlefield, or, and, you know, Shadow, sorry, uh, yeah, Shadow of Mordor uh, certainly has that as well. Um, you know, a lot of those, and maybe that's why it stood out to me actually, is because I remember the dialogue from the Uruks in the first one saying, Oh, yo, you would have killed me in the last thing, but I've now I've come back for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's an actual quote. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think actually a lot of it's down to animation. Like, they have very good mocap and very mm. good facial animation. This also came across yeah. the other trailer they showed, which um, introduced, uh, I think, uh, it's a, a female elven assassin, I think, who will be a main character in one of the expansions. They said, and in the story, and is therefore maybe the sixth female character in Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, um, and uh, that that was far more sort of stage fantasy dialogue stuff, but actually quite well performed, and you can see the benefit of the mocap and characters being able to react to each other. And from an acting point of view, I think that the reason that you kind of immediately get that kind of like, oh, this isn't traditional video game um, high-end waffle, is... <laughs> So the the skill of voice acting is often like you have to do everything about the, um, the, the context and the feeling behind the line through your voice alone because you are voicing a cartoon character who moves in probably quite a stiff way and so everything has to be done through the voice and so voice acting tends to be like a slightly more over the top register than it's why like when you put a perfect example of this is Sean Bean in Oblivion <laughs> who voices Martin as an actor and were it a his performance is completely appropriate if he was physically there but it's completely inappropriate and it sounds super dead yeah like it sounds like it's just dying because what quite some quite naturalistically delivered dialogue is just emanating from this potato (laughs) that's fair (laughs) and you can't and and so it sounds totally wrong Whereas the same performance with someone who is emoting and doing all the body language things Mm. that humans do would probably come across as quite natural and um you know because he's not a bad actor it's just he delivered a actor performance for what was necessarily a voice actor role. And I think yeah. their mocap is getting good enough that an actor can do like small things or like talk slightly under their breath or like, you know, I mean, obviously it's not, you can't really talk about physical acting so much when you're talking about like an, like a 10 foot tall orc man. <laughs> but at the same time, there's like digital performance. Yeah. The digital performance thing, like there's little things Bruce does where like some of his like little observations about decapitating people or whatever it is are sort of, not under his breath, but you get the kind of realistic impression that it's just sort of an aside. Yeah. And that is traditionally quite hard to do if you're also delivering everything super up because you yeah. have to get the, you know, you have to sell everything about the character through only your voice because your character is essentially a potato. Yeah, that's a good point. It makes me wonder, if, like, I've always just sort of felt like the standard for acting in video games is so wildly low. Just, you know, just even the, a shitty B movie is sort of better than ninety percent of games in terms of performance quality, but I think you're probably right that it's largely down to just subtleties of a person's face. Like if you're just if you're filming someone, uh, there's a whole load of subtlety that can come across. Yeah, because you know Vass in in Far Cry Three was, was mm. I feel like one of the first of digital performances that really worked, where you know they they've captured enough of the face that it actually looked natural rather than uncanny valley, and uh, added to the performance rather than taking away from it. Yeah, it's like it's going to be weird the first couple of times a character expresses something to you in a game just with a look or hmm. with a small facial gesture or something like that. <laughs> you mean like um, like a human? L.A. Noir. Yeah. With, uh, the, <laughs> like, I just did the face at Tom, but the yeah, the, the lying face. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, because it's it's a you know, but I guess I think maybe the fact that they're monsters in in Lord of the Rings almost helps them a little bit as well because they can do, um, they can do those things bigger and it doesn't necessarily yeah. have the uncanny valley problem. That said, um, I was reminded of I can't remember who 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 done the tweet. I think it was someone related to Game Shadows, but someone pointed out that the the line in in I think, um, Lord of the Rings: The Two Towers, where the orc leader sieging Helm's Deep says, looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. Establishes a cosmopolitan lifestyle for orcs, at which point nothing in Shadow of Mordor is <laughs> off the table, because if he knows what a menu is, then he knows what a restaurant is. Mm. That means that at some point after they're birthed in sacks in Isengard, <laughs> the uruk are going to having some kind of dining experience while <laughs> selecting things from a menu. Um, so Bruce, the, the big, he's not an orc, he's the bigger than an orc, smaller than a troll, I know um, him you know having a kind of cosmopolitan attitude towards people getting decapitated is actually completely in keeping with at least Lord of the Rings movies if not the books so yeah but it is really exciting I'm really looking forward to it mm. and that is another game that's doing everything because that has a loot system that has all these mm, other things yeah. but I think I think the sort of the reactive nature of the nemesis system makes it a lot more promising because it feels like those things might actually meaningfully like you said Tom play into a story that you then tell someone you're not going to tell the story of the time you found a bow in Assassin's Creed, right? No. Yeah, I remember that. Unless I want to be thrown out of that party. <laughs> I remember one of the uh, Uruks in, in Shadow of Mordor um, who had this amazing red headdress and I really wanted to get him on my side and have him as part of my crew. Hmm. Um, and I got in a fight with him and I didn't manage to, you know, possess him or whatever you have to do to before you're allowed to possess him. Um, and he basically killed me except that i had an ability that lets you get you gives you one last chance to like uh sort of adrenaline kill the person who's about to kill you um and um i could have used that cheers but i wanted his headdress i wanted him on my side because he had a cool hat so i let him kill me <laughs> i was like i'm going to die now because i'll come back if i kill him he's gone forever well, well potentially. If, you, if you kill him there's a chance that he comes back but yeah. maybe mm. you'd knocked his hat off exactly yeah. he, he probably would have had a bag on his head because that's what happened to most of them <laughs> i decapitated them and they came back with a bag on their head right. like, that solves the problem <laughs> uh, it's i'm really excited about the violence in that game uh, <laughs> honestly uh the the sword combat was really satisfying in the first game and it looks like it's going to be equally hyper violent uh, there is executions there is something a little bit unsettling about the whole mind control thing you do sort of yeah. <laughs> you really kind of violate them in yeah, a way that's not yeah, i'm not 100 percent comfortable with i i know they'd never ever do this but i feel like you could solve all of my problems that game if you just were an orc <laughs> like mm -hmm. the reason you're taking control of orcs is because you are an orc and the reason you're vying for power against other orc chieftains is because you are an orc chieftain yeah it's slightly in keeping with um talking fiction a little bit because elves are very much not like the good guys really in that mm. fiction mm. and it's uh the you're being possessed by this elf and the elf the elf has all those powers and instructs you to use them and uh the human is almost a vessel for it uh so maybe that is i mean obviously the yeah for good. some reason my brain just went so much for the tolerant elf <laughs> it's like the drawback of using your ghost elf powers is when you kill them they say so much for the top of the elf. <laughs> uh, uh, that's gonna be very good yeah i'm really excited about it um 
when I saw, on that mat, on that note, actually, they did say, or at least he might have said this. It might have been during the briefing when I saw the game, or when I was speaking to him, that they they are sort of because they're going to have Sauron in this game. Like rather than just be a presence, he's going to be mm. more of a deal. And you are becoming like the bright lord, but as specifically opposed to his dark lord. And the implicit idea is maybe it's good to be no kind of lord, which is, <laughs> which is even, just, despite the um, you know hugely over the top nature of the game actually is a very Lord of the Rings appropriate theme because the whole point of Lord of the Rings is that the only people capable of wielding power are these humble little hobbits who are ultimately the only people who can be trusted with it like men can't be trusted with it elves can't be trusted with it hmm. even sort of like godlike beings like Gandalf can't be trusted with it and that you know it's ultimately about you know he- sort of small scale heroism from the people in the middle so weirdly having you play as sort of the ultimate magic man possessed by the the ghost of an elf mind controlling orcs and building his huge army doesn't undermine the actual kind of story of Lord of the Rings that much because the whole point, the whole reason that it's Frodo who's capable of doing this thing and that no one else can is because he's not the most powerful person in the world. Mm. So, I mean, obviously that doesn't necessarily get off the hook completely, but I don't think it's as far gone as you'd think. No, I mean, the, the arc of the first game was clearly leading to supplanting Sauron. And probably replacing him as an equally dickish overlord. <laughs> equally killed millions lord. by that point. Yeah. Next on the list, and this is, I don't know how we're going to do this segue. XCOM 2, War of the Chosen. So we mentioned mm. this next it's week. It's got the word war in it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Shadow of War of the Chosen. Um, so this is the freshly announced XCOM 2 expansion. Um, according to Jake Solomon, the biggest expansion they've ever bigger than previous expansions i assume he meant previous bigger than things like enemy within not yeah. bigger than the previous dlc packs they've done for xcom 2 mm. but yeah because enemy within know. was a legit expansion yeah um so this introduces sort of like persistent kind of nemeses i guess like special aliens that you will fight multiple times that have sort of special traits and things and get more powerful as well as multiple different human factions that can all, or at least ally factions that can be sort of recruited and give you loads of new bonuses. Yeah. And uh, so they haven't really, I feel like they haven't done sort of villain characters much before. Because the, the, what was the, so I have the Alien Hunters DLC and I started the mission for it, but I haven't got anywhere with it. I think it, I can't remember if something went wrong, but I, for some reason that was the point that I stopped playing my late, latest campaign. Um, were they individual specific characters or was it like a type of. Super alien. I think there are more like boss fights than that. Whereas mm. in this, it's they're huge characters who can seriously affect your campaign if they're not dealt with. Um, and so you, in this, you fight them, but even if you defeat them, they they're not like dead. They just sort of go away, and then they come back later. Is that right? Yeah. So they um, they dog you throughout the campaign, and they aren't they're ultimately out to destroy XCOM, but they're actually after knowledge. And uh, the way they get knowledge is often by like pinning down your troops and extracting knowledge from them or oh, wow. actually just kidnapping <laughs> them from the battlefield. Uh, and you can rescue them afterwards, but they can just straight up steal sort of soldiers. And uh, sometimes they'll kind of just attack you directly. Sometimes they'll show up in missions when you don't expect. And uh, sometimes they'll hunt you down, uh, use a massive gun to blow your ship out of the sky. Then you have like a, an all or nothing fight where the chosen come and try and finish you off for good and that's a game over isn't it? Oh, right. if, if you fail that mm. um something like that already happens in xcom 2 doesn't it but... yeah it's a variation on that but about but with apparently they come at you with the big gun as well <laughs> uh, and each of the 
each of the chosen, which is what the nemesis is called, have a kind of corresponding uh, ally faction who are their kind of uh, antagonists. So you can befriend these allied factions. And the more you get to know them, the more power you get. You get to hire their soldiers, who are fucking amazing. So there's loads of bonuses for making friends with them. And they'll give you uh, kind of strategic orders, which are like policies in civilization, um, which let you add stack-up effects um, that could benefit you in battles. So, for example, one might be the turn timer for a stealth mission doesn't start until you're spotted. Oh, okay. Uh, that sort of thing. Um, or it could be a modifier on the strategic layer that reduces the advent countdown by one one every turn. The, the advent, advent calendar. calendar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that what it's called? What's it called? It's the advent calendar. The advent calendar. The, the bad, project. The, the final chocolate. The big bad project. <laughs> <laughs> the evil advent calendar of doom. The final chocolate is conquest. Uh, so as, as you pretend these factions, they give you ways of hunting the chosen. So it's kind of cat and mouse across the strategic map so i can't remember the first two human factions that they talked about but the third one was defectors basically so they're like mm. alien soldiers who've decided actually no this is wrong <laughs> we should not do this um and the uh i can't remember if it was an image or a video but the the thing i saw of them like you could they're they're wearing the full advent armor but also you can kind of see their like fingers underneath it and they've got like talons yeah. and so they've been physically altered by the process um but I really like that idea of having some advent soldiers on your side. Yeah, and so all of the factions have their own kind of aesthetic and their own deal, basically, and very themed upgrades that you can get off them. And uh, so you can have those guys in your squad if you befriend them, and they're, like, insanely fast. They're just human-alien hybrids who can do, like, loads of actions every turn. Awesome. Uh, and the idea is that at the top level, they earn, like, ability points, and they can unlock just almost game-breaking abilities. <laughs> so, for example, I think there's a, a sniper one who... Uh, if you've got enough points, can uh, just empty their entire clip in one shot. <laughs> so if you've got like a an upgrade on a, like an insane gun that you have, they'll just fire all of them <laughs> at one target. <laughs> um, the other awesome thing, there's so much they've added, it's crazy. Um, the other awesome thing they've done is they've added uh, bonds between uh, fighters. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, which is awesome. All I want is Fire Emblem inside <laughs> XCOM. Uh, yeah. is, actually, uh, uh, our friend John Roberts uh, tweeted a screenshot of, of a quote about that, just saying, well, XCOM is the best game ever. <laughs> yeah. um, I was, uh, talked to Jake Solomon like a couple of hours ago about this, actually, and that was like one of my first questions. It's quite hard to ask Jake Solomon a question because he's the most <laughs> enthusiastic man about XCOM ever, uh, and he'll just tell you everything about the game before you even ask a question, which is brilliant. Um, and he explained it as, uh, so... Almost like you know when your guys level up and you don't know their specialty yet, and mm, then suddenly mm. they'll have an experience. They'll get to the end of a mission, you'll know they're a sniper or whatever. Um, suddenly, kind of bonds, will, compatibilities will pop up as people fight together. And if you work on those compatibilities, they'll become battle bonds. And these come with like abilities that you can use on the strategic layer and in the fighting layer as well. So on the strategy layer, if you send like a couple of battle bros into uh, like a, a stealth mission, you know the co the covert missions mm. where you kind of like put them somewhere on the map for a few turns they'll get it done like twice as fast because they're so work so well together on is the, it implied that they are banging uh jake said that uh, it's whatever the player wants to think <laughs> okay so, yes. so um yeah you get to make your own stories with that uh <laughs> triple x calm <laughs> on the battlefield they get to do cool stuff like uh high five high five that'd be amazing <laughs> someone should mod that in bang, um, bang. They, they can like uh both 
shoot a, a target at exactly the same time to do like it's cool. Just, <laughs> even the idea of this is badass. So, Let's yeah. shoot him, bro. Like, yeah, bro. Can they can they stand back to back? Uh, well, I don't know. And shoot in different directions. I hope can so. can one of them throw a shotgun? To the, the other one in slow it. motion and, <laughs> and, he, he cocks cocks it. It. and then, he and then it. a helicopter goes over in like really really slow motion and then the top gun soundtrack plays yeah uh <laughs> to be confirmed I would say. uh they can like uh revive each other and if there are new panic states uh, and stuff like that and if if one of them makes it to an, uh, another one and they're panicked they can like get rid of that and says oh I really slap them on the back and say it's okay get up and fight it is i your friend <laughs> Uh, we are banging <laughs> remember <laughs> uh, so that's that's awesome uh, and it's something that, that I think almost everyone's played XCOM has thought about yeah uh, I've, I've just fully like fictionalised those relationships yeah, yeah. I just made yeah. them on my head you end up shipping members of yeah for sure, <laughs> sure. yeah, yeah I, I said to Jake Solomon like people have been doing this in their heads for three years now it's kind of cool <laughs> that you've finally given people the so is there thing. a is, did he say that if there was a like a if one of them dies, does that like... Oh, that's a good question. I should does, ask that. Does that like fuck them up? Because presumably oh, yeah, that would yeah. be the downside is that like if one of them goes, then the other one just like... Because they, they do have a state of shaken, don't they? Where it like mm. lasts between missions where... Ah, yeah. You, it's interesting. Really... I, I don't know about that specifically, but your soldiers can get tired now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and right, been there. Shit. <laughs> I feel this. If they, uh, if they go on a, a few missions in a row, they, they get tired. And you can still send them into a fight where they're tired, but they can come out with some negative effects. Uh, and one of them, the example he gave me was obsessive, where if that soldier in future fights has no ammo in his gun, his first action might be to just reload it. <laughs> uh, and it's that sort of thing. It's like character four little things that happen occasionally and might sort of slightly screw you over if you're not careful. I love the idea of adding like Sims style ticks to characters. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. the more of that I, stuff they can add, the better, to be honest. I liked, so shaken happens when you are, if uh, um, a soldier... I think it's if they get critically wounded or like take a lot of damage or something. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's just they, they took a lot of damage at the end of the mission. They can they get shaken and then they will sort of get their groove back if you take them on a mission and you succeed in the mission and they don't get injured, mm. which is not too hard to do usually. Um, and I like that system, but I always kind of wanted it to be a little bit finer grained. I want it to be like if this person was like mauled by a chrysalid, they should every time a chrysalid comes near them, there's a chance they're going to panic because mm. they're just they're chrysalid phobic now. They just can't deal with it. They're just like flashbacks to their horrible injury. Yeah, I always like it when those go both ways, which is what happens when people panic in XCOM Two as well. There's a chance they'll just hunker down, but there's a chance they'll take a shot that could just uh, you know crit a uh, mm. chrysalid to death. <laughs> yeah, or is, kill one of your own people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is uh, satisfying and irritating. It is. Yeah, it's always cool when they, uh, you know, their panic action is to fire and their shot kills the alien. And then you're like, you should panic more often. <laughs> we should just scare this guy randomly. <laughs> Boo. Ah. <laughs> the other awesome thing they've done uh, is they've added loads and loads of uh, text and speech to the game in the strategic layer. So the chosen uh, nemesis aliens will taunt you constantly hmm. over the comms as you're kind of like looking at the map. Uh, and they'll refer to earlier missions and things you've done. Uh, Remember the airfield, Fisher! <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the kind of the ship on the way back, you'll now hear Advent news reports spinning what you've just done in the field, mm. and that kind of thing. And, uh, awesome. About, they call them terrorist attacks and stuff. Yeah, and it's kind of comment and say, you know, in this country, the evil, you know, terrorists hit this target, that kind of thing. And in, One of them shot his gun in the air and then they all ran away. <laughs> Uh, in the uh, kind of the rec room, I don't know what you call it, the one with the bar. Yeah, it's just a memorial place, really. Yeah, yeah so if you, apparently if you zoom in on that on the expansion, there's like a whole 
radio DJ there. There's like loads of kind of jokes yes. and stuff happening. It's all this sort of stuff that they've, they've just they've three dog. <laughs> they've touched almost every aspect. Of the I think game what I want is like XCOM Two Citadel, where it's just like <laughs> yeah, the party yeah. all the time. Yeah. And whenever they add that sort of stuff or and add that functionality, it also gives modders a hook to just add more of that sort of thing, which mm. is a really exciting thing about XCOM 2 as well, because it's built to be moddable in lots of ways. Um, so I'm really excited about it. It says it's almost everything they've added, every aspect of the game they've added to. Like that new, sounds great. New weapons, um, insane new classes. Now. I actually want to finish my long war playthrough so that, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm, so that I'm not sick of XCOM by the time this comes out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Fantastic. You mentioned covert missions where you have to put soldiers in for a few turns. Yeah, what, I think there are like infiltration bits sections. And... Was that in XCOM 2? Yeah, I think so. I don't remember it. Because <laughs> I remember hearing about the long war where you have to infiltrate people well, and that's, that's like a multiple no, turn there, thing. So there are... Hmm, that's a good question. Because that stuff is an enemy within as well. Unless they're just adding that stuff. Yeah, I remember... I don't know. I remember maybe an enemy within where you sort of... You have missions where you can only send one guy and he only has a pistol yeah. and um and that was like a, a special covert thing. Yeah, there are gonna be there's definitely gonna be more like that. Um I think like, prison break scenarios for all the dudes hmm. that those chosen to kidnap, that sort of thing. Specialist missions. Which is very invisible ink, actually. Mm, good point actually. Mm. Those systems would Which would be an amazing them. thing for them to learn from. Like if yeah. they're gonna I feel like I'm not hundred percent sure, but I feel like I've heard Jake Solomon talk about that game. Um He's he's definitely like the kind of person who plays other stuff and actually pays attention to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there yeah. are some game designers who are just kind of like up in their own world, you know, and they they just want to do. You mentioned that actually. Thing. One of the, the things that gave him the idea of the chosen was um, actually Shadow of Mordor, <laughs> and the, oh, well, that was our segue, Tom. Yeah, <laughs> we had it. it. Oh man, <laughs> I've been doing this for, podcasting for so long and still so bad at that. <laughs> the but, the disparity between how highly podcasters rate the importance of segways and how high the <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> listeners rate segways is is startling <laughs> well i've I'm, never listened to a podcast and been like oh, this topic didn't relate to the last one at all what the hell <laughs> i tell you what though i did multiple times during this e3 struggle to reconcile the previous topic with the new one such as when shadow of war which you just mentioned <laughs> segue into life is strange yeah. that's a fucking segue <laughs> nice Life is Strange before the storm got announced at this E3, um, which is the not the one that Don't Nod are making. That's the interesting thing. Oh, right. There's two lots of new Life is Strange. Life is so strange you need many <laughs> to explore. Yeah. Um, so this is a prequel to Life is Strange, sent where it looks like you play as Chloe, um, hmm. and it features Rachel, which is things... Is Rachel, right? The one that is I've, not in that life sounds right. I heard yep. people talking about that. I've not played Life is Strange beyond no. the first. Oh, have neither of you played Life is Strange? No. Oh, okay. Well, this will be a but, short bit then. So, uh, there's something. Well, uh, Life is Strange uh, was a game that was. I didn't feel like it had like a huge. It wasn't like a huge hit on release, but it's just ever since then, I have not stopped hearing about it. <laughs> like, so. Uh, ever since. Like, and I think my, my way of encountering it was probably representative of that which is that like pip had played it and just kind of wanted to watch me play it and so i played hmm. all of it over the course of, of a bunch of sessions it's five episodes and it's great like it's it's i think there's a reason that it's sort of gained this sort of quiet fandom but also kind of a, a, a degree of awareness that maybe other games of similar kind wouldn't like it's really well executed it's really um sort of charming and 
sweet and sad and human and just kind of worth mm. worth the time it takes to get through the five episodes actually like so something interesting about this new one is um uh my friend ashley actually played chloe in the original mm. um and she's not playing Chloe in this one because of the sag aftra strike am i saying that right, right? Huh. there's a bunch of acronyms um so she couldn't work on it and so someone else was playing chloe uh, but she is a consultant on it, so she's sort of like huh, giving right. input on on Chloe. That might work, and this is a like it's in, it'll be interesting to see what they do because they've set themselves up with some potential things. Like, so when Life is Strange first sort of came around, I'm on the edge of a sneeze, so apologies. <laughs> um, <laughs> like the edge of tomorrow's sequel, no one wants it. <laughs> uh, it's just Tom Cruise sneezing <laughs> over and over and over again. Um, so you know a lot of that game. It's sort of like it's back of the box features is kind of like Max's time power. The fact that she can rewind yeah. time to do conversations different ways, which is a really cool idea in a game about mm. exploring conversation trees to actually have it be part of the story. Um, it wouldn't make a lot of sense for that to exist in this game. Uh, I almost don't think now it needs it. Weirdly, like that whole sort of side of it, um, the fact that it's called Before the Storm. Um, is again important if you play the original game so like it's sort of it's almost it's it, like i think it has the potential to be like the fire walk with me to <laughs> to life is strange twin peaks because life is strange well life is strange borrows a lot from twin peaks generally hmm. um and it also hinges like twin peaks off sort of events that happen off screen prior to the game and this is explicitly about those events by the looks of the trailer they announced so i think weirdly like the first game sort of like sci-fi layer could be completely stripped away and you could make an adventure game just about the human characters that are involved if they choose to not do any of the time travel stuff and it would work really well it's genuinely exciting like i would recommend anyone go and play life is strange who's missed it because this is the way it, it spreads like it's not it takes a bit of getting used to and it's but i think not because like we were saying earlier about performances being very different to what you're used to in games, Life is Strange's writing is very different to what you're used to in games because it is it is like American teen drama writing, really. Everything is hella. Everything is hella something, and like with a mystery layer above that. You know, I think I would have a newfound um, tolerance for uh, some of the quirks of that since uh, living in America for three months recently, and I was just in an elevator, and uh, there were uh, two girls talking about uh i think music and one of them literally said and i was just like whatever <laughs> and it was just a line that i've only ever heard in jest before yeah and it was just, these are real people literally saying that that is just real elevator. that is authentic <laughs> yeah well that's like it, it's um it's unusually ungame like in the way that it's in the way that teenagers talk to each other in it and um yeah it's great and i imagine so many people played it now that that's for preaching to the choir but not much was revealed of this kind of like prequel stuff, mm. but it's it, it's cool because, you know, you can just keep telling stories in that setting and it, it keeps being interesting because, you know, as, as Telltale spin out into doing more and more stuff in more and more sort of outlandish settings and taking on licenses that maybe aren't a good fit for that kind of um, walk around, make choices, talk to people, solve a puzzle, adventure stuff like Guardians of the Galaxy, which they're doing at the moment. Life is Strange is good for being focused in on just kind of interpersonal stuff. And yeah. Yeah. 
Speaking of interpersonal stuff set in the Pacific Northwest, but not really, Tacoma <laughs> is out in August, which is cool news. There was not a lot of it at E3, but I'm actually really excited to see what they have yeah. done now. I have uh, literally, uh, you know, I haven't like played it at all, and I haven't really followed it that closely, except just to sort of um, the odd trailer. So I feel very unspoiled in it, which is good. Mm. I really want to go into it fresh, I think. Yeah, I'm excited to see what they can do, particularly because they found a way with holograms of putting characters in yeah. Yeah. in that game, which is an interesting, like, that's something that's, I think, hit a load of different, I really don't want to say walking simulator. I, the floating simulator. It's floating simulators. <laughs> funny enough, like, Prey has sort of... Um, I feel like covered some of the ground that I imagine Tacoma is going to cover, where it's this space station where there is a story and you're uncovering it in retrospect. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really interesting that System Shock 2, um, I don't know about System Shock 1, but certainly System Shock 2 was uh, a thing that really wanted a human story and wanted a story about humans and acted dialogue in audio diaries. And it does... Uh, a really good job of telling these stories but it can never have you meet a human and it's desperate mm. to avoid that and it goes to crazy lengths to avoid that to the point where like uh the closest you ever get is like you're just about to find these two people you've been reading about or hearing about in audio diaries for the whole game and there's like a door closes between you and you see them rush off and that's the closest you ever get yeah. to a human speak to me through this letterbox yeah and then Bioshock uh, does a similar thing where, like, the only humans you find are behind invincible glass and all that stuff. And then Prey just was like, no, nope, we just got humans. <laughs> They're just there. <laughs> you can kill them if you like. They'll talk to you if you don't. Uh, and we've just... <laughs> like real humans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I found that with a lot of my friends. <laughs> um, and, yeah, it was kind of weird to, to find that, actually, oh, I guess that isn't... I mean, it doesn't 100% hold up. There are problems with it, but it, it, it doesn't... I didn't get the impression that they spent 90% of their development time on that, uh, but it did work. They were, mm. they were just hanging around and they would say things that weren't totally out of character and it wasn't totally weird and I could shoot them at any time, which I didn't. Then um, that's usually the thing of, of like, oh shit, if the person's important to the plot, then you can't kill them because then we've got to figure out how the plot goes from there. And Prey struck some kind of interesting balance between that. And so Tacoma... Um, uh, builds on you know gone home's thing of walking around an environment and discovering it through audio diaries except that you see people walking around uh, I think as they are as you hear the audio diary uh, so you sort of see the performance but it is a hologram recreation of what happened on the station so you can't interact with it which is that's how they get around the sort of central problem that people have been avoiding for mm. years of humans you can interact with but yeah it's just kind of interesting that prey has popped up in the middle and, and sort of not had to avoid the problem as much as other games and hasn't really fallen foul of it. We talked about uh, there's a quest in Prey that really does completely fuck up <laughs> yeah. in almost every way. Because of exactly that but thing. Yeah. yeah, but but they could just cut that quest and I think that you would say that game handled NPCs pretty well. Mm. So there's no segue here. <laughs> Cuphead is coming out on PC. <laughs> in September. Well, really? hang on. Prey, you can turn into a mug. <laughs> Damn. I don't know. You're right, though. That that would have been a better segue. I don't um, know what the segue sounds like, but so yeah, I didn't know this was coming to PC until we just saw it on PCGamer.com. So presumably <laughs> it's coming to PC. Tom, right about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. The blame Tom if we're wrong. I'm not sure. Whether, I'm not sure whether that needs to be. I'm mostly aware of Cuphead at the moment because of people, specifically Crit and Crowbar regular Scoo, 
um, shouting it at Paul from Mode 7. And I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this is me receiving half of a joke, but not the other half. But Cuphead, have... beyond that, sorry, Tom, you're saying. Oh, I was just going to say, I have a, a few friends who... Um... A few friends who are just wildly excited about Cuphead, like this is the most mm. exciting game in the world to them, and I think they're all animators. <laughs> <laughs> Which is for good reason, because Cuphead is the 2D platformer game that looks like a cartoon from the 30s. Yeah, mm. now that we say this, I, I remember we have talked about it on the podcast before, so maybe we... we maybe maybe it, it was it an out to PC or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe the thing I remember us saying is that... Um, uh, uh, it's like those cartoons from the days when cartoons were racist. Yeah. <laughs> we just hope it's not racist. Well, so it seems like they have made... I've seen that discussion around Cuphead enough that I presume someone has yeah, responded to it. They've got to see this coming. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. Surely. There is a this problem. Is the easiest trap in the world to avoid. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. Um, but the, I don't think there are even really the new... people in it, are there? Like, it's all totally abstract. Well, um, I mean... You're a Cupheaded person <laughs> that's true yeah so like the yeah i think i think it seems to be avoiding being racist in exactly that manner um the trailer that they put out for e3 has some just incredible fucking animation in it yeah. like you're fighting a big medusa squid lady looks nice it's a lot easier for us to just simply link the trailer in the show notes and let you <laughs> yeah. experience what this actually yeah. looks like than attempt to describe it I heard that it is actually all hand-drawn. Like, they literally draw it on paper oh, wow. and scan it in. That's amazing. Mm. That seems really hard to mm-hmm. do. <laughs> <laughs> should probably be the tagline for the game. <laughs> this, <laughs> this was fucking true. hard. <laughs> yeah, Please yeah. buy it. <laughs> uh, let's see. We're getting towards the end of the list. Awesome. A big list of E3 things. So, other things that were announced at E3 that just... I wasn't expecting Metro Exodus. Yeah. So Metro 2033 is one of my favorite single player shooters ever. Is that the most recent one? No, Metro Last, Last Light, Light was the most right. recent one. But 2033 is better? Um, I think... Mm. <laughs> so There's a Redux version of it. Which Metro can... Redux is 2033. So mm. like... That is the one that I would recommend people play first, partly because it's the start of the story, obviously. But it's the one that's got the sort of occupies the sort of fondest place in my heart. I mm. think Last Light is a sequel to a game that already knew it was good, whereas Twenty Thirty Three is the game that kind of set up to do things slightly differently. And um, so the the key to the Metro games is they they are the middle ground between Bioshock and Stalker. Hmm. Um, without the kind of slightly OTT kind of pretentiousness of the shock games, but without the kind of lack of focus of Stalker. So like I love Russian science fiction. That's sort of one of like and I've always really admired like very drab takes on the apocalypse where things are very simple and practical and kind of right there in front of you which is what stalker always did very well it's like being based on like roadside picnic stalker was always about the idea that like an alien could briefly visit your backyard and leave it a radioactive wasteland for a thousand years that makes people mental and metro is sent in a world where there has been a nuclear apocalypse and you've got to sort of climb out of the subway system hence it being called metro yourself with sort of shonky handmade 
nail guns and shotguns and sort of bolt guns and things that all have a sort of tremendous sense of physicality. The handmade nail guns tail. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's my ultimate title for this game. That's an... Jesus, (laughs) that that is an amazing compound pun. (laughs) Yes, basically that. Um, And that first game, like... That the Metro 2003 was one of the first games that made me want to write about games, like <laughs> legitimately, like um, because the way it feels physically and the way that ties into um, sort of how lost and isolated you feel, kind of like just surviving within this environment, um, is brilliant. Like you have a like a gun that is pneumatic and therefore has to be pumped, so you don't <laughs> reload it. You have to pump it and there's something kind of brilliantly sort of like analog and physical about that that you don't get out of a normal reload animation the the sensation of like panic pumping a gun in the middle of a fight is i don't know it's a mixture of like feel and like level design and art direction and stuff that creates a really convincing sense of like survival against the odds in a relatively traditional kind of nuclear apocalypse but at a sort of with a degree of kind of like both creative fidelity and sort of sobriety that other games like this don't hit like fallout also sits somewhere to the side of metro in terms of the map of you know post-nuclear apocalypse games not being familiar not being very familiar with metro games um for most of this trailer again it was a cold open i thought it might be a fallout game Mm. it was like oh they're I mean, it'd be weird, I guess, that it wasn't part of the Yeah, like, show, like <laughs> Russian Fallout would be one way to think about it. Like, it's a lot more sedate. Like, it's a lot more kind of like, oh, well, shit. You've been, <laughs> you've been kidnapped by a gargoyle. That sucks. Anyway, back to playing cards. Like, Last Light was a little more spectacular in some ways, a little bit sort of bigger in its kind of um, ambitions. And I really love Last Light for that. So I'm basically just excited that they're making a new one. Yeah. Essentially. This, this video sure. was first person and sort of looked like gameplay at first and then as it went on it became increasingly clear that it was not real gameplay in that very special way where it's kind of it's what uh it's what a developer would like the gameplay to be and it's it it feels it's obviously what they showed to the public but it also feels like what they would show to executives because it uh it uses custom animations to sell particular moments Mm. in a way that if you've played a lot of games you know from long long experience these are never in the final thing <laughs> this is like the thing they do in the sort of previs or the the proof of concept um that in practice they can't make work in every situation and so is not actually part of the game and it was uh I, they weren't really sort of claiming it was in game really so it wasn't like a deception or anything but it was just funny to to watch it and think oh yeah he's playing a game and like oh no there's a custom stamping animation here so <laughs> that's not going to happen mm. it's open world is it looked open-ish i mean yeah it just looked like fallout to me quite a shift because one of the things i love about the series is how claustrophobic Mm. it is and how it plays with space it kind of puts you to open areas and then closes you back in again yeah i mean this video started in a very narrow tunnel and then they merged out into a fallout type Mm. uh, wasteland and so that that made a big deal of that so i assume that's how the game works maybe i mean that sort of does happen in both metro games where you go outside briefly Mm. but there's a lot of drama attached to that though like it's gas mask management <laughs> gas masks on and kind of um they do an was... amazing job of kind of making the gas masks a 
really vivid texture in front of your face that can mm. get blood and splatter and rain and shit on it. It's really good. It was actually uh, part of what made me think it might be a Fallout thing was just that it's a Bethesda cliche to start in an enclosed dark space and yeah. then emerge out and have this one moment of like, oh shit, it's a huge world. Mm. We'll see then. Mm. Also in terms of big open world where things have gone wrong, don't know why I'm committing so hard to the segue thing, State of Decay 2 was announced. Mm. And there were a lot of zombie games at this E3, not a lot of them PC-focused, um, because zombie games will never die, appropriately enough. Actually, the XCOM 2 thing had zombies in it. Yes, no, it did. Oh, yeah, we forgot to mention XCOM zombies. Let's talk about XCOM attack zombies. Attack aliens and you. Indeed. They so do. That's, I, I, I saw zombies and I'm like, oh, God, really, <laughs> zombies? But then hearing that they're like a third thing that will attack but both they're neutral zombies. Yeah, mm. that, that makes it mechanically interesting, at least. Mm. I think it's, it sounds like it's going to be tied to Lost Cities in particular. So it's almost like a terrain type. And if you happen to battle there, then you're going to have to also fight these waves and waves and waves of zombies. Mm. So State of Decay was the zombie survival game about like building up a group of survivors and building up a safe house. Oh yeah, I remember it now. And it's getting a sequel where you do those things. <laughs> I don't really have a huge opinion on this, except to say that um, there's a, in the reveal at E3, this made me laugh a lot, in the reveal um, it shows it's a bit heavy-handed and it's not a great trailer because no one's mouth moves while they're doing dialogue. <laughs> which is not an amazing look in 2017. However, it shows a sort of male survivor, obviously the player character kind of leading people and so on and recruiting followers. And, and, and obviously it's trying to set up the kind of dynamic event that presumably will happen in the game as it works. I mean, kudos to State of Decay. It is trying sort of Nemesis system-esque kind of meaning for your decisions at one point he decides to save a particular follower rather than let her succumb to the zombie play. He uses her his last mm. antidote on her. And then late in the trailer, um, he is very gruesomely ripped in half by a boomer from Left 4 Dead or yes. a big zombie, <laughs> um, depending on which side of the IP you're on. And uh, suddenly the player character becomes the lady he saved earlier. Yeah, right. And the idea that you'll sort of switch between mm. people based on the party and she kills the big zombie and moves off. <laughs> so whenever you save someone, it's just like a one-up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, cool. Uh, presumably. The best thing about this was I was watching this on Twitch with chat on for some reason. And among the swastikas and everything else, <laughs> um, scrolling past was one guy saying... As the man got ripped in half and was replaced by the woman he'd saved earlier, this is such fucking SJW pandering. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Like, it was amazing. That's, it sold me on the game immediately. My favorite thing about that was uh woman gets bit by a zombie and then uh, the dude uses his last syringe to save her, saying, oh, we need everyone, need everyone we have or whatever. Um, and then when he dies... Uh, there's a voiceover thing saying, and no one gets a second chance. It's like, you just showed someone getting a <laughs> second chance. That's literally what happened. You don't get a second chance if you're ripped in half. No, that, I mean, if they'd said that, <laughs> sure. You get a second chance if you're bitten a bit, but you don't get a second chance <laughs> if anything has fallen off. Yeah. State of Decay 2. <laughs> I really, I didn't play State of Decay 1. I actually heard really good things about it, but uh, watching this trailer, again, cold open, didn't know what it was. And I was just like, this could be 
anything. There is no zombie game that if you incremented the number at the end of it, I would not believe you if you told me this was it. Yeah, if you exactly. told me it was Left 4 Dead 3, I believe you. If you told me it was, uh, I don't know, Killing Floor 3, <laughs> I'd believe you. If you told me it was Walking Dead, <laughs> I would believe you. Almost as if it's a little overplayed. Yeah, there's some overlap. So speaking of things that we're not going to have anything to say about, Forza's coming to the PC. <laughs> Cars! Good. Good for the people who like the games. <laughs> I about put this things. on the list, and now I don't know why. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's probably one of the most, kind of, one of the prettiest and biggest racing series <laughs> in the world, as far as I know. You can tell how little I know about it. It's prettiest, uh, biggest, it's uh, the carsiest, <laughs> Forziest. Uh, so it's, it's worth, worth mentioning. They had uh, a car on stage at E3, I noticed that. They always do. I'm a sharp yeah. observer. <laughs> there was a car there. It was to prove how powerful the Xbox One was by having a car on stage and saying, look, that's also powerful. <laughs> the Xbox One X, I think you mean. Oh, yeah, sorry. The Xbox. Xbox. <laughs> it, um, it actually, it, it recurs. So it's Xbox One X, and then the next one will be Xbox, Xbox One Xbox <laughs> One. Yeah. Um, there's a finite number of sounds they can oh, make. God, I just realized they're going to do an Xbox Zero at some point, aren't they? <laughs> they're just yeah. going to go backwards. Or, confusingly, Xbox Two. <laughs> or it'll be Xbox, Xbox Zero, Xbox but the, instead of a Z, it'll be an X. <laughs> Xbox Two Origins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. There's nothing they wouldn't do. That's the problem. Like, <laughs> there's true. no joke they you can make stopped. that, that they might not come through. It's, it's honest to God, the worst branding on... <laughs> planet earth i mean just apart from anything else i'm just from a sheer practicality point of view the other one is called the xbox one s which is phonetically almost identical to the xbox i wondered if they were going for like phone naming like iphone s right like but Mm i don't know so this is a weird thing to come to mind but i remember once upon a time when i was a teenager and distraught that the dreamcast hadn't been successful because i was a dreamcast early adopter Mm. for a teenager um and obviously the playstation thing my dad, who has no interest in games whatsoever, sitting me down and very sagely explaining that PlayStation is a brilliant name for a console and will inevitably sell loads because it sounds exciting and it sounds kind of futuristic in a way that Dreamcast simply doesn't. Hmm. Um, and he was right. He has no interest in games whatsoever, but on hmm. this particular point of branding, he was 100% correct. And every time Microsoft... A stat, like struggle to name a new Xbox after after Xbox 360 inexplicably worked <laughs> I think back to that message mm. <laughs> like Xbox was never a good a good name for a console I I haven't really recovered from Xbox One I'm still in shock yeah <laughs> this is the thing like I was, I was at really? I was at the I must have told the story before I was at the Bethesda one, pre 360 E3 event one. I was at the Bethesda E3 event in or pre E three event when they announced that, surrounded by games journalists and the ripple of <laughs> befuddlement and hu- like people like uh, uh, when whoever it was at the time Don Matrix said and it is called the Xbox One, and as far as I could tell, like half the game journalists in Britain just laughed out loud. <laughs> like, how did they end up there? There's the Nintendo Wii though. Just never forget. <clears throat> yeah, that's that true. Switch, brilliant nice. name. Switch is great. Yeah. Good. That's consoles. Anyway, that is consoles. Sorry. <laughs> we know so little about right. cars. We've dived into console chat. Um, there are cars in it. It's coming to BC. It's going to look real nice. Vroom. That's how cars go. Indeed. Next, and finally, 
It's a way out. Pointedly put at the end of the list. <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, so it's from the Brothers A Tale of Two Sons guy. Um, he is presented as a guy <laughs> on stage. <laughs> um, uh, more than, uh, you know, the studio. Um, and it is a split-screen co-op game uh, about two people breaking out of prison. It is... I, I'm not totally sure, but, like, it sort of just has this uncharted uh, or sort of Naughty Dog vibe about it. And uh, the most recent Uncharted game involved you breaking out of a prison with your brother <laughs> in a way that was, uh, you know, you cooperated and you did all these things. And it just... I know, so much of the aesthetic and so much of the, the theming of it is so similar to that that I kind of couldn't... I almost couldn't really see past that. It was just like... If if there have never been an Uncharted game about breaking out of prison and there have never been an Uncharted game with a brother... Um, I don't think you actually are brothers in this game, but the, this is the, the studio who made brothers and it is about two men cooperating with each other. Um, even if that had never happened, you'd still be thinking, wow, Uncharted... And then there was literally an Uncharted game where you do this exact thing. And it's not split-screen co-op in Uncharted, but um, it's still... I couldn't get past that. <laughs> it's also... So it's split-screen co-op, and it's... I don't know. I, I feel like I was a lot less taken with this than a lot of people were. Um, split-screen co-op, I guess, is just a, a, a really crowd-pleasing feature that a lot of people want and don't get usually. And this is... I was going to say exclusively split-screen co-op. You can play it online, but even when you play it online, it will still be split-screen because I think the whole game is designed around you being able to see what the other person's right. perspective is. And they do a bunch of like very custom cinematic things with it where um, you know, uh, one of you can be in a cutscene, the other one can be playing the game while that cutscene is happening. And I imagine there's going to be a whole load of cutscenes where you know you are going to see part of the cutscene from one person's perspective and part of the cutscene from the other person's perspective, mm. and that will be used to dramatic effect, which certainly has a lot of potential. Um, but yeah, it kind of struck me as... I'm sure it's going to have a whole bunch of... Kind of like Brothers. You know, Brothers was a, a game where you controlled two people, and it was single-player, but um, it was a series of sort of vignettes where, in this situation, you must do this, and here's the mechanic, and then a bunch of cutscenes and I get the impression this is going to be that as well it'll just be like here's how you have to cooperate in this scene and then we move on from that I don't know why I'm being dismissive about that because <laughs> I like brothers um, but for some reason this didn't really excite me it was just that but in a prison <laughs> is just much less exciting mm. what will be really interesting actually is to see if they have any anything that comes remotely close to the crowning moment of brothers which is uh, a spoiler to explain in any detail, but just a, a, a way that the controls and the narrative match up in uh, in a way that was um, beautiful and uh, brilliant. And only just recently did any other game come close to that. With Edith Finch um, had a, a not not really an equivalent moment, but just a, a similar thing where mm. controls and story aligned in a really nice way. And that is all of the E3 that we have on the E3 list. Hmm. What do we think of E3? Good? Bad? I actually get very pretty excited. Um, uh, but I guess my sort of, you know, my game of the show would probably be the Dishonored expansion, <laughs> which is, you know, for it to be an expansion is maybe not a great sign. But um, I Dishonored 2 is so good. And I love Dishonored 1 as well. And the fact that Dishonored 2 is better gives me a huge amount of faith that that when they set out to make something that adds on to that it will just be better it'll they'll just make it brilliant yeah um 
it's, and that's really rare actually there are loads of games i love there are very few studios who just make better games again and again mm. and i would say i don't think prey is better than dishonored 2 i think dishonored 2 is better um but that was obviously a different team within the same studio and prey is also really really good in its own way so the whole studio is brilliant and specifically the dishonored 2 team is uh, especially brilliant i agree with tom mm. tom my game of e3 was wolfenstein mm. for mm. reasons expressed I think uh, Shadow of War is the other one that I'm right. 100%, well, not 100% sure, but like 90% sure I'm going to love. Um, yeah. And so in terms of how excited I am about it, uh, that's really high. In terms of what we saw, I liked what we saw, uh, but it wasn't like mind-blowing. It wasn't like, mm. because we already knew about this game, we, the reasons I think it's going to be good are strongly grounded in how good the last game was. It's kind of a testament to the fact that like Bethesda are on a fucking roll at the moment. Yeah. Like... Yeah. Not obviously, Shadow of War isn't a Bethesda game, but man, if they just keep giving really talented first-person game developers mm. the budget and the freedom to do what the fuck they want, then that is a good thing. Although that their conference had a pretty negative reaction from the public at large, I think, because a lot of people were hoping for a new Fallout or Elder Scrolls, and they didn't get it. Um, and then they also sort of reannounced paid mods, which is always a. Uh, um, hmm. I was going to say a controversial topic. It's almost universally a negative topic. <laughs> like people just hate it uh, for reasons that uh, kind of surprised me a little bit. I don't. Uh, I'm not surprised that some people don't like it, but I'm surprised that it seems like no one likes it. it I would have thought there'd be more people saying, "Oh, this is cool because if people can get paid for what they make, they'll make cooler things. They'll make more in-depth things." But what they will make is PC Gamer back pages. For five years <laughs> yes. so, I, I did a sort of double take watching this because they show a bunch of. So this is the um, the Creation Club. Is it like the Bethesda Creation Club, or because it's it's for both Fallout and Elder Scrolls, and uh, it is a thing where. I think some of this content starts with the mod community, but specifically what they're offering you through the system is stuff that has been approved and possibly uh, worked on by Bethesda um, and is guaranteed to all work together. So it's like a sort of super um, streamlined mod type ecosystem and you buy them with points. I don't know what they're called, but you uh, it's a intermediary currency where you have to buy a certain number of points and then you spend those points on the, the mods and stuff. Um and one of the things they showed was a, the, I think they called it a, a, a they might even call it a dwarven mud crab, but it, properly it should be called a dwemer mud crab. <laughs> um, but it was a mud crab wearing golden armor, which looked really familiar to me. And I thought, where do I know that from? And I think, didn't we do a joke about this in PC Gamer? Wasn't like after horse armor was a huge, you know, horse armor being sort of the, the famous um, first misstep in DLC, which in retrospect looks not at all stupid or no. crazy it looks like the, the people sell way worse things than that for way more money these days it's pioneering but, it yeah up. because it was first it, it got a lot of the flack mm. and uh so we were only too happy to jump on the <laughs> music gamer and when skyrim came out it was like oh what's the first dlc for this gonna be it's probably fucking armor for a crab um and so we did a back page um where we pretended that the first dlc for skyrim was armor for mud crabs and i'm I feel like I wrote this, but I don't want to say it for sure because I'm... I'm I know Marsh did the picture. Yeah, so I, yeah. I think I remember commissioning him for that. So I think I was in charge of this at least. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, we commissioned Marsh to basically add armor to a mud crab and he did a brilliant job and he did, added you know beautiful golden armor in the Duema style. And 
I think what happened is in the meantime, between then and now, a modder made that. Like they saw our back page and thought that that's cool, let's do it. <laughs> or that's funny, let's do it. Uh, and I even, I think I might even remember seeing this mod before now, but I kind of forgotten. And then uh, Bethesda, I'm pretty sure intentionally <laughs> pulled that particular mod into their showcase of what kind of mods you could find in the Creation Club. And so they showed this Dwemer Armor Crab. And it is, it's not just the concept of putting dwarven armor on a mud crab it is literally the same armor it is marsh's armor like it is marsh's crab armor (laughs) which is kind of beautiful what a journey we've all been on indeed but it's such a a strange it's an interesting decision on their part because we were taking the piss out of them for charging money Mm. for silly things and this they knew that, that like they didn't even have to guess because they've done it before they've done paid mods in skyrim before and they literally just reversed it they cancelled out of it because the negative reaction was so strong so they knew they were going to get a whole lot of backlash about this about the value of those mods and the idea of paying for things that were previously free and they chose to show a mod that uh, i'm pretty sure was previously free and was the object of ridicule from pc gamer for being <laughs> look what's idiotic stuff they could do for money <laughs> in a way this is todd howard's way of saying that you can't touch him <laughs> you know what he likes yep your back page jokes have no power over people <laughs> it's i i feel pretty positive about the whole thing i'm glad mm. it exists um yeah, uh, i say. i think their system is probably a net positive i'm i'm glad they're doing it i know a lot of people are upset about it but um I think it will just give a new way for people to charge money for things. They can still release for free mods if they want, and that will continue to happen for sure. Feels like this will be the norm in a few years. They're just like one of the first people to really be. Yeah, I mean, uh, they I were first with horse armor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just said how much flack they caught for being first with DLC when what they were doing with DLC is something we to just accept as normal these mm. days. And someday, paid mods will also be mm. accepted that way. Should we do questions? Yes, why not? Of course, Tom. Great suggestion. Let's do it right now. <laughs> Smooth. Yeah. Alad writes, do you think there will ever be an E3 where there isn't an iteration of Skyrim shown? This was pretty surreal. Uh, Skyrim came up like three different times in this yeah. E3, which, and this is a six Skyrim came out the month I joined PC Gamer. <laughs> <laughs> and now, three months after I left PC Gamer, after it's a still... career spanning more than five years, it is still at E3. <laughs> in a way, there's some nice element to it in that like, this is... I'm glad Bethesda is successful, and I'm glad this particular kind of game is successful, because there was a time when them doing this seemed like suicide. It was like everyone else was doing MMOs, and they were just making a world the size of an MMO, but saying, oh no, it's only you just buy it once, you don't have to pay a subscription, and it's not multiplayer. And I remember thinking like, shit, I love that game, but this doesn't make any commercial sense. And so it's cool that, you know, you can sell that one game for six years. And, you know, it does amazing on Steam, even mm. without, even if they'd never done any special editions or remasters or anything, it would still have, have um, sold really well on Steam for like three years after release. And now they're just putting it on every platform and all the consoles seem really happy to have it. It's good. It's good. The game deserves that recognition, I think. Mm. I mean, this sort of ties into the fact that they sort of announced that they're not working on yeah. a sequel. Yeah. Why would you need to when you can just keep <laughs> keep selling Skyrim? That was kind of surprising to me because they. This is the kind of time where we're all expecting there to be a new Elder Scrolls game, and mm. okay, we're not expecting it to be released today, but where they tend to announce these things one year before they come out, and um, if it's if it's going to come out next year, they'll announce it now, and so the fact they haven't announced it yet 
and then the fact that they're not even working on it, these things surely take at least two years. So I feel like we're not going to get it for a while. It tends to be mm. like five years between yeah. the faster RPGs. So there's a long lead time on those. It's just they're working on something that isn't Elder Scrolls or Fallout. There's a rumor that they're working on a space game. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It feels like, I don't know, Elder Scrolls just seems like a... There are some season series where I don't want them to do regular iterations and just endlessly mm. do it. But like Elder Scrolls feels like this a really good concept that they have not at all, you know, finished. They are mm. nowhere close to, to living out the potential of that. There's so much more to do. There's so much more to improve. Every Elder Scrolls game is always like, we're doing a million different things and so yes the individual things are not quite up to scratch but we're getting better each time and so the combat is getting better each time and the magic is getting better each time and the level up system is getting better each time uh, and the world just like the um the richness of the world how how good it looks but then also just how much stuff there is in there mm. i remember like oblivion much as i loved it um really fell short of like fallout 3 fallout 3 just had an incredible amount of stuff to do and then skyrim one of the reasons it was so good was it was like oblivion's um sort of setting not setting exactly but you know uh fantasy um plus fallout 3's richness of world um and uh, they finally join those two things but there's still so much more to do in that in those areas so it's a brilliant open world at the time when open worlds weren't everywhere like they are today yeah and so the sense of scale and the kind of i think it remains a brilliant open world actually because it's yeah, not farmed out into tiny parcels of repetitive tasks it's mm. you know it's a meaningful space yeah and when you go explore. from one end to the other it really feels like a journey the, yeah sort of organic moving from a forest into the flatlands and then mm. over the mountains to the north and onto those beautiful frozen wastes just uh you know uh to north there like it's i still it feels like a place in my mind still mm. yeah yeah i mean it's it's funny like I think the the funny thing about Elder Scrolls is like to to continue that point is like every different element of Elder Scrolls could stand to be better. The thing I think that slows them down is that those iterative improvements from an official kind of Bethesda point of view happen with a new game, which also involves remaking <laughs> everything else about the game yeah. from the landscape to everything else. This is one of the reasons that the kind of value of those games is found in their mods, because mods allow players to go in and do those combat improvements that finally get to the combat to where it should be and do those magic or level up or experiential improvements that get everything else about the experience where it should be unburdened from the requirement of making a new story a new world a new set of quests a new set yeah. of everything else and that's yeah maybe yeah maybe maybe the real skyrim 2 <laughs> was the mods we made along the way they uh bethesda have absolutely um taking that stuff on board like i remember there's an archery mod for oblivion that bethesda specifically cited as being the inspiration for how archery works in skyrim so they they look at the mods for their games and and realize which things work and which yeah things don't. i think they'd be insane if that wasn't the case right like yeah. i mean presumably you know i'm talking about fraxis earlier like they should do that as well and clearly yeah. do like look at what we will do with their games and and apply it next up uh i think i'm pronouncing this right jörg writes hello kista und Breck Eisen. Recently, I attended a lecture about religion and ethics in games. One of the games mentioned was This War of Mine. Obviously, it wasn't for the religious symbology in that game, but for the unique way to show that everything you do has consequences. For example, if you steal bread from one apartment to help your group to survive, you may well condemn the owners of the apartment to starvation. 
It came to me that I'd love that mechanic in RPGs. In many of them, you can rather selfishly loot NPC houses without consequence, as long as you're not caught. Now imagine that after you stole everything from one of the poor NPCs, you met the victim begging in the street next time you enter the village, or see them bury their starved family member. Or if you loot the whole village, the people there might become so desperate that they try to mug every traveller who enters. I think it would help a great deal to make people move from pure power fantasies to more serious role-playing. It might also open up more valuable moral decisions than just choosing of two options to answer in a dialogue. It also might be good for emergent stories. He goes on to ask if you can, if we can think of other features that you may have seen in one game that might enhance another. Uh, and says, greetings from good old Germany and prost, everybody. Um, I think, but I actually think that's a really cool idea that's not, the nice thing about this is it's not like, why can't we talk to the monsters level <laughs> um, sort of uh, unrealistic what if It's actually like within the realms of possibility that you can accidentally create a bandit camp by stealing everything in a poor village. Yeah, so there's, uh, there is a history of features like this in, um, in RPGs in particular. And the, the sort of unexpected problem is that actually simulating this stuff is fairly easy. Like, it's all pretty logical and we can do that, that, it, that technology exists. And the problem that always comes up is that the player doesn't know it's happening and it's about how you communicate that this is happening to the player. Like that scene of, uh, you know, the family burying the person who starved to death because of the food you stole. Why do you see that? When does that happen? Is that, you know, scripted trigger when you next enter the, the settlement? Or is it a cutscene that pulls you away from the game you're playing? Uh, usually the problem is we can make that happen, but the player will never notice it. Or if we force the player to notice it, it becomes really jarring and weird. And one of the classic examples of this is... Um, Ultima Online, which is obviously an incredibly ancient game, um, uh, they had a system where if you um, uh, if you sort of killed all the animals in a forest, uh, the dragon that was living in the cave nearby uh, ran out of food, and so because it couldn't find any food from the forest, it would go and attack the village. So you killing all those boars and stuff had actually caused this dragon to attack the village. It sounds like an amazing story, except that you never knew that was happening. It was just like, fucking dragons attacking the fucking village for some reason. <laughs> no one knew why it was happening. And Humans. So it didn't produce any good stories. It was just a random weird event that uh, people just took in isolation. And so the challenge there is not the level of simulation, which we can easily achieve. It's the how do you communicate what's happening in the simulation to the player? Mm. There's actually a, kind of a different, but um, uh, in Oblivion, there is an orc who is on a drug run. Uh, she will go to, I want to say like Breville and deposit some moon sugar in a barrel and pick up her payment from another location there and then walk all the way to another city in the land and if you follow her she'll you can see her walk the, in the entire route if you don't it'll just happen on a schedule and it will she'll arrive at the time she should have arrived because they had a system for that and deliver her drugs and take her money and just go on a circuit like that and that i only know that because i read the official guide and that was written by people who knew how the game worked internally and they feel like probably no player would ever know that was happening <laughs> mm. but it related i don't think it related to any quest exactly but there were some references to there being a drug ring and uh yeah that that stuff it probably didn't take anyone very long once they had the basic the system uh you know that simulated i guess it was radiant ai was it called that back then it was yeah um uh 
they have that system and that's probably really easy to program but it's really hard to get the player to ever know that's happening and mm. sure enough no one does know that's happening unless they read the guidebook <laughs> i can see the benefit of survival though because when players do figure out why things have gone different for them like especially now in the age of sharing all this stuff i think those sorts of not flagged reactions to player action can actually potentially be revealed to the player through other means like I think if you have a game that does react in that kind of way to the things the player does, and but someone doesn't find that out until they watch someone play it on Twitch and something different happens, or they watch mm. someone play it on YouTube and something different happens, that's probably fine. Yeah, uh, I think you know maybe it's maybe it's more more viable now than it used to be for that reason. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe if you sort of move away from MMOs and start to look at single player stuff, mm. um, the ways that that can go differently get exposed better these days. Yeah, for sure. Worth mentioning, Tom, I think you mentioned it during the break. Yeah, Chrono Trigger, Chrono Trigger has uh, puts you on trial at one point <laughs> and confronts you with everything you've done in the game up to that point. Well, a series of things that's kind of flagged. This is like a uh, Star Trek Next Generation. Like yeah. Uh, so, for example, if someone drops a pendant in the opening town and you can pick it up and keep it or you can pick it up and run up to them and give it back. And uh, if you keep it, the trial they go, why did you keep this pendant? And you have to sort of defend your actions and, you know, you get all through the courts for everything you've done uh which is again you're right like that is a way of flagging to the player what's happened and the fact that yeah. you're being watched and these mm. things are being noticed is really powerful um but it is like you do need to be conceit like that to actually deliver that information next up diffraction writes hello crank and crowbar what is a question if not a grudge that seeks to be ended <laughs> <laughs> wow pretty deep my grudge is that co-op games require friends to play all the same way. It's crucial that I ended that sentence. <laughs> Too many need everyone to play at the same speed, for the same reasons, and worst of all, at the same skill level. Are there any games that end this grudge? Are there any games that go further, that have asynchronous co-op, or even co-op across genres? The closest I came was Minecraft. A friend could run off into caves and mine and fight and he would return with loot to a sturdy, well-organized house with food and equipment ready. I want more experiences like that. Regards, Diffractor. I think, annoying, I can't remember the name of the game, but there is, uh, is it, I, I think actually multiple games, but there's at least one game where one of you plays a hacker and the other of you plays a spy. And the hacker is the one who can turn off security cameras and mm. disable doors and stuff, but they literally only see a map. And the the spy is the one who's actually running through the corridors and uh, needs to sort of wait for the hacker to do their thing. I think this is... I mean, this was the thing that was great about MMOs. Like, an MMO in my kind of formative years with that genre was always about big communities of people all engaged with the game differently. Um, I think, you know, I've I've spoken already on, on this episode about how I respect games that sort of boil down multiplayer experiences just to their kind of practical essentials. But the thing I admired about MMOs for a long time was that they brought together people with divergent play styles and found a way for them all to contribute to a single goal. Dark Age of Camelot being the best example of that, I think. But other MMOs have done it as well. Um, 
Yeah, like uh, maybe one of the reasons to be excited about games like um, Sea of Thieves is because it promises that kind of like if you want to be the person who navigates, you can do that. If you want to be the person who does the swashbuckling, firing themselves out of cannon stuff, that you can do that. Yeah, that that demo they showed, they had a whole like long puzzle section where sort of three of them went into this cave and they solved riddles about the boar shrine and taking ten steps northeast and then digging for treasure. And then when they got back to the beach, they were attacked by skeletons, and those skeletons were were killed by cannons fired from their ship because uh, someone just stayed on the ship that entire time. <laughs> and it made for a cool video, but I can't help think wondering what, what that person was doing for the other like fifteen minutes of that demo. Alt right? tab, <laughs> happily alt tab. <laughs> like, but no, I can totally see that. That sounds fun. Like, I think there's um. If you, I don't know, if, Those, was, if that group and you said, hey, we're going to go and solve this cool puzzle, you wait on the ship, I'd be like, can I go and solve the puzzle? <laughs> so maybe this is a me thing. I love being the person who waits in the car. Actually, funny enough, um, that particular example, I, I, I don't like the idea of, but um, one of the coolest like co-op experiences I had was with you, Chris, and my job was literally to just wait. And that's all I did. Um, and it was GTA 5, I guess. Oh, yeah. Where we were like doing a sort of co-op assassination. And it was like this villa. And the, if the target was alerted, they were going to run to their sports car and leave through their driveway. And so your job was to break in and see if you could assassinate him. If you failed, he was going to run to his car and escape through the driveway. We knew where the driveway was. So I stood at the end of the driveway with a sniper rifle. And I you know, pulled up in my car and you know, blocked it with my car and then got out. Just stood next to my car with my sniper rifle, just waiting. And I had no idea what you were doing. I didn't get to see any of the cool mm. things you were doing. Um, but my job was literally, if you fail, when he comes this way, I'm going to shoot him in the fucking face. Yeah, <laughs> And you didn't fail. You did it. So nothing happened at all. But I still felt super cool just being like, <laughs> this is my role. Because <laughs> then your job like, because then your job becomes pick me up, right? Like, I come, yeah. I come sprinting over the fence, like, guards in tow. And yeah, like, I love... Some of my favorite things in co-op games are the sort of idle moments or the just facilitating things like it's the reason i love planet side which is a game that i think is not had a you know planet side 2 came along and it seems it must be still going i don't know what happened to it since um soe became daybreak etc etc but like the great joy of planet side would be like i just fly the drop ship <laughs> like i just drop the people off at this endless front line of combat and do something else like that kind of um Asymmetry and pacing, I think, is super cool for for co-op games. I had it earlier today in in PlayerUnknown's Battlegrounds, like just being the guy who drives the jeep. Like you guys go off and rob the houses, I'll drive the car. And that particular run for me ended with us discovering a big load of of an opposing team of players on the opposite side of a ridge line. And I had not got any good guns in that run. Like all the buildings I'd looted had just been rubbish, and I only had a shotgun. And I knew I had to go because we were going to be recording this podcast. <laughs> so um, as everyone else crawled on their bellies up to the top of the ridge line, I just sort of went, guys, I'm going to distract them and, and kick the, the jeep into gear and drove over the ridge at like fast. <laughs> I just drove straight at the enemies and the jeep catches fire and everything. But as those guys expose themselves to shoot at me, my team opens fire from the ridge line and I die in a blaze of glory. Like I, <laughs> uh, you know, and that is, you know, those kind of moments of sort of like, um, asymmetry and not everyone being dragged along at the same pace as the rest of the team are kind of what makes co-op good it's the reason that like 
the um, the defining example of bad co-op for me remains Borderlands, weirdly. Hmm. And the reason for that, despite it being a good game, is because because it's both a, a long-form game and a very kind of technical game when it comes to loot and stuff, it's actually tremendously boring if you're not at the same pace as each other. Diablo suffers in the same way, where if you don't all want to go for a town break to look at loot and compare stats, that's bad as well. Like, yeah. There's actually... Um... I'm a big City of Heroes fan, and I did like City of Villains, and for the most part, City of Villains w- was the only time in MMO I've already had like, a guild that I played with regularly, and it uh, that was great. Um, but the game mechanics themselves did not suit it that well, because there was... The class I was playing was a... I want to say like a brawler or something, and their thing was like, as they dealt damage, they built up some kind of, I don't know, like an adrenaline meter... But that was, it wasn't just when it was full, it did something cool. It was as it was building, it, it was a multiplier to all your damage. So the more you'd fought, the better you were. And everyone else uh, was just losing health in combat and they needed to heal and rest after combat. And my character was like, after combat, that's my fucking prime time. I'm ready to go. Bring on like the next hardest thing. I can take on something that's twice as hard as what we just did because I'm super powered right now. And no one else had a mechanic like that. Everyone else was like, we're exhausted. We need to heal. And so that just created this unnecessary dichotomy <laughs> between me and everyone else. I was like, I'm, I want to fight. Everyone else was like, no, we need to rest. And so, okay, we can rest and I'll lose all my bonus. Fine. Mm. Next question comes from Malkav11, who writes, Hi, Command and Conquer. One of the celebrated features of recently PSPC-ified platinum game Vanquish is a dedicated button for smoking a cigarette. In a recent RPS article about Interstate 76, much was made of the game's dedicated poetry button. Are there any of such quality single-purpose controls you can think of? Best Malkav 11. I used to use... So in Team Fortress 2, there's taunts. And mm. there's different taunts depending on not just your class, but also what weapon you're currently using. Um, and as the spy... Uh, if you bring out the cigarette case, which is sort of your disguise-ometer, um, if you taunt then, you kind of it's, it is a cigarette case, and so you take a cigarette out and uh, smoke it and then flick it away. And that was always, because it was the most casual of taunts, it was always the best one to use on anyone's, <laughs> after you killed anybody. It just looked like you had all the time in the world, and you had nothing better to do, and you just smoke a cigarette and flick it away. Um, yeah, that was cool. Cargo Commander is an example. It's a 2D game about exploring procedurally generated space wrecks um, that you suck onto your vessel when you go and loot them. Um, but it has a button that lets you swear, I think. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. I, the dude swears. <laughs> Brilliant. I really like that game. I, I don't actually remember the swear button. <laughs> but that's uh, it's a really good game. Everyone should play it. It, mm, didn't, it, is good. it didn't do that well. Um, but it was a game where you, can, you press a big magnet button and it will pull in other wrecks to your... You're, you're kind of inside a ship from a side-on perspective and platformer-type view, and it would bring in other, basically, platformer levels, which were essentially other ships, but at random angles, you know, it would just be governed by physics as to how they collided with your ship, and then you could sort of launch yourself out of your ship and go through space and land in theirs and then fight enemies inside and grab loot and stuff. Um, and it was really well done. Um, it had one of my favorite tutorials ever. It had this like really nice to-do list system where it just gave you like five different things that you got to do, and each one you did, it would just tick it off, and it made it really satisfying rather than a chore. And then also the other cool thing it did was that every because uh, they're randomly generated levels, each one would be a seed. 
and those seeds would be consistent across ev- everyone's games and so you know i was a pc gamer at the time and we just sort of typed in the word pc gamer and saw what galaxy that led to and what challenges that led to and then shared that amongst our community and said hey anyone who wants to try the pc gamer galaxy try that and you'll be facing the same rules we did and you can compare your score to ours so i had that that system which was really cool hmm. next question comes from pierre um who writes dear date and low bar Chris, you are unfortunately quite wrong (laughs) about Mass Effect Andromeda. In your narrative, the fact that it was secretly a great game was just obscured by the overwhelming popular narrative of the faces look funny. I believe lots of other shortcomings are also to blame. Among among those is just the terrible way it deals with alienness. When I first touched down on the Angaran planet, I was expecting to discover an anthropologic and 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 anthrop that shit (laughs) (laughs) and anthropologically analyze a whole new, utterly utterly different sentient species, their way of life shaped by their isolation from the Milky Way and our boring ways of doing things. Instead, I touched down in a city that might as well have been Neo Portugal, speaking. (laughs) and understanding their language within seconds. Crossing galaxies seems to involve a similar level of culture shock as going from Belgium to the Netherlands. This destroyed any interest I had in exploring a new galaxy and had me quit the game. This leads me to this broader question. What games have achieved a decent depiction of real aliens? You know, like the good stuff in Arrival. Thanks for the pods and a walloping guten tag from Germany, Pierre. So, um... Actually, I think this is a reasonable point in abstract, but completely the it's so Bioware set themselves up with a really interesting problem where they needed to move Mass Effect to somewhere where it couldn't be affected by the events of the original series mm. if they were going to move it forwards. Because um, otherwise they'd have to deal with the million different consequences. The vast consequences of the end of yeah. Shepard's trilogy. Um, however, Sorry. Mass Effect as a series is utterly the wrong place to do Alien Aliens. <laughs> like Mass Effect is about relationships and it's about characters and it's about characters uh, that develop and grow in ways you understand. And while on paper, the idea of going to a new galaxy and encountering a new alien culture, but they're all fucking, uh, they're all sentient blobs of jelly and you have no way of meaningfully communicating them whatsoever and no way, no analogies with which to understand their culture. It's good on paper, but it would be an utter disaster from the point of view of what you expect to be able to do in a Mass Effect game. Mm. And actually, from that, like, I, I made a joke about this on Twitter. Like, when they first showed the Angara in the trailer, I had a pop at the fact that, like, clearly ski jackets had evolved in two separate galaxies. <laughs> and so I kind of get it, but at the same time, like, the game goes on a meaningful journey with the Angara. Like, there is a big twist with regards to the Angara. Um, uh, Jal, who is your Angaran crewmate, has a really cool arc that establishes his peoples. It's not... Yes, it's kind of weird that life in the Andromeda Galaxy is also bipedal and can quickly speak a language now just English, but it is also utterly necessary for the type of game that is. Mm. And I don't think that's basically like while I can understand the criticism of they could have done more alien aliens, 
I think they would have made a dramatically worse game had they done so. Yeah, I think like truly aliens. I mean, I guess like the Hanar are maybe the closest they've come of like weird jellyfish. There is yeah. no Hanar crewmate. There is no <laughs> strong Hanar relationships. Uh, I do think that like the Krogan and the Elcor are good examples of. I mean, the Krogan are bipedal, but they, they do look really different to other bipedal races. There's a whole different physical build to them. They don't look. They don't have like what I would call like the Star Trek phenomenon, where it's it's a actor with some clay on them. <laughs> I had a weird. I had a weird shower thought the other day, which was that if you were a, well, a human in like either the Star Wars or the Star Trek universes, with a talent for making prosthetics, <laughs> you could pretend to be literally any alien <laughs> from those universes. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the cool things about Mass Effect was just that, I mean, the Turians are, are very humanoid in a lot of ways, but they have those backwards legs and they, they there's something insecty about them, obviously. Um, and yeah, I remember really liking the Krogan just for like how different their whole sort of profile was and how their stance was in a way that Angarans, I sort of, I, um, I'm failing to appreciate all of their individuality but in my mind, they get stored as basically two legs. <laughs> yeah, sort of they're looking like a bit like twilegs. They've things. got yeah. I mean, there's a good like a lot of Andromeda is setting up arcs for future games that may now unfortunately not happen. And actually, like, so the thing with the Angara is they are meaningfully different from the other races in the Mass Effect universe to that point. Like they have. You know, Bioware found a way of inserting a new alien race that wasn't the Asari and wasn't the Turians and wasn't the Krogan and was something else and had its own story and had its own challenges. What it isn't is utterly alien to anything from the Milky Way, mm. which is the thing promised by the Andromeda setting. And I completely get that. Like, it's a reasonable thing to expect. However, I think the fault doesn't lie with the Angara specifically so much as the fact that by moving to Andromeda... But I almost need to be more honest about the fact that we're moving to Andromeda so we don't we're not beholden to those choices, not so that we can offer some sort of like HR Geiger crazy alien experience that is completely different to what we've come what has come before. Because if you expect that from Mass Effect, like I just think it's the wrong game to expect that from. Yeah. Like I think... where do the choices come in if you can't speak to them because your languages <laughs> have no value? Like yeah. How, where does the relationship building stuff come in if if it's just unknowable like yeah i mean they could be if you want to make them different they could just be a cloud of gas and that's the easiest thing in the world to show it, it and if they can't talk to you that's the easiest thing in the world to write yeah. <laughs> and uh it's not hard to do that um so i agree that they should be a, a communicable race that is in some way relatable to us and actually now that i say it um maybe the krogan is the only example of what i would have liked because things like the Elcor and the Volus, uh, who are very physically different to, to the other humanoid races, they work because they're in the context of like seven other species. Mm. If they were the one new species, if the one new species is the Volus, they're kind of like a bit of a comedy race. Yeah, <laughs> they're yeah. kind of like, oh, look at us, we're silly. Um, and the Elcor obviously are a comedy race. Uh, they're great, but they are, um, yeah. it's, a, it's a single joke. Um, there is a lack of variety in Andromeda that's a bigger problem than the supposed alienness of its aliens hmm. like because in the first mass effect game you meet krogan turian um, you do meet all of them at once yeah, yeah and you, it's this amazing feeling of just like 
suddenly a culture clash or a culture shock yeah. almost. And then you go to Andromeda and there's one, the Angarans are cool and interesting, I think. Um, but then the bad guys are just the most fucking staid <laughs> bad guys. And there's yeah. a complete precursor race. There's also, I've seen all that before and it's hmm. not particularly, doesn't look or feel particularly interesting. And it lacks that variety, even though you're going to- I think, to so a lot of that stuff is, and this is one of the things like, I think the fact that Andromeda put so many people off so quickly hmm. is a shame because all of that stuff becomes fucking great in the late game. Like at the end of that campaign, I think a lot of that stuff is justified and the stuff about the cat that is really cool and the stuff about the precursor race that is really interesting and sets it up relative um, specifically to the Reapers in a way that sort of, I think now I feel, I feel comfortable talking about it now because like it feels like now there's probably not going to be an Andromeda 2, which is a huge fucking shame, but they set up a lot of stuff that I think would have meaningfully bounced off themes of the original game without doing exactly the same things again. However, on the surface, I don't think they... I think they played it too safe with those ideas and they didn't front-load them enough. Like I say, I think I think the last act of Andromeda saved so many of its big ideas. Yeah, I, th- I think it shouldn't have been an open-world game. <laughs> no. In in the, the their version of an open-world game anyway, just put too much stuff in the way of, of the exciting things about Mass Effect. Yeah. Um. Yeah, like which is which is sad. Yeah, exactly. Like there are some things that come through the open world, but like all of those big kind of revelations I'm talking about are like the final three big story missions of that Mm -hmm. game kind of give you the oh, like as the first Mass Effect game did. Like this is the thing I always come back to with that game is that it has so many of the same um, failings and successes as the first Mass Effect game. For example, it holds its best kind of plot cards for some crucial late game missions that a lot of players probably aren't going to see. Mm. Like I, you got to imagine the time it came out, a lot of mass effect one players didn't go to Vermeer and then didn't find out that this big weird spaceship that looks like a squid called sovereign was actually <laughs> this thing called a reaper. Like, you know, Andromeda has a very clear point like that. And it's that thing of not getting there means that it's no, no good. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, but it, they needed more hooks in the early game then. <laughs> if people aren't getting to that stage, then... I, mean, I think that Mass Effect 1 gives you loads and loads of hooks because you're seeing so much new stuff and you're being introduced to so many yeah, new concepts. Yeah. And uh, it's the problem with having, having already played three games is that most of those concepts and those races that you're surrounded by at the start of the game are very, very familiar. And That's it doesn't true, yeah. give you much new to really kind of latch onto. And I think those open world structures have the effect of putting the brakes on in a big yeah, way sure. as well. Like- and, and it really allows the player to spoil it for themselves by spending too much time in an area uh, especially because some players just love to hoover stuff up in fact they feel an- anxious if they don't hoover stuff up and in that you know if you're that sort of player then andromeda is a terrible game for you because mm. you're never going to see anything cool uh, for a long time uh, which is a, a bit of uh, yeah which is a problem sadly uh, it is a shame though that it's done supposedly done quite badly <laughs> on the sounds of it um and i just hope it doesn't discourage by way from making at the the narrative bioware game because I, I love that sort of game yeah yeah absolutely obviously the burden on them is different but did mass effect 2 and 3 introduce any new races no well uh, so 3 introduced the actually no they did so 2 introduced the the um drell uh so thane yeah thane's race oh yeah he's awesome um, um and, and three what are the ones the vorture with the vorture with teeth? two yeah so three They're... introduced kind of Batarians had been in it, I guess. But then two in it more. Two is a roller coaster, wasn't it? it was yeah, I don't know a... if Batarians were in like number one. So I think 
I think I figured this out close to the time, but like Andromeda's new like rate of new <coughs> species additions is equivalent to the other Mass Effect sequels, mm, but right. not the same as Mass Effect One. So yeah, it's not the I'll same see. as reinventing the entire setting. Because, yeah. but obviously, it's not necessarily unreasonable to expect that a game that moves it to a new galaxy will reinvent the entire setting. Mass Effect One is pretty amazing. Yeah. <laughs> when you think back at all, all the things it did, all the things it established, yeah, and yeah, how good it was, and, and it's like the it really nails an aesthetic with quite a limited ten, like ten. Yeah, it, it, uh, like definitely the combat is just way worse than any other Mass Effect game, including Andromeda. Um, but almost anything else about it holds up, like. You can, mm. and certainly just that sense of you know you're talking about earlier about like you're hoping for a new Kotor and you got Mass Effect and uh, you know for a moment it was disappointing but then uh, end up becoming one of your favorite series. It is just it takes such a lot of skill to make a, a whole new universe that is going to capture people in that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I think I think and maybe that residual fondness is why I'm so forgiving of Andromeda's problems. But like, I do think it's. I do think it will remain deeply underrated. Like, I think there's so many things it gets so right and character things it does so brilliantly that it'll be such a shame for people to lose it. In terms of the question and games that get alienness right, I actually can't think of one. And the reason for that is that every game I can think of that has had a, a successfully evocative alien in it has had made some concessions to human perception of that alien. So the example I give is Alien Isolation, which is a game that I admire a lot. Um, but where the developers deliberately ensured that the alien creature, which behaves in a brilliantly kind of unsettling way, still adhered to certain kind of like human logical paradigms, like having a sight cone despite not having eyes, making sounds despite not really needing to. <laughs> and all of those things, like you still feel sort of alien and unsettling when you play it, but actually, in order for that effect to happen, it needs to kind of do some things that bring it within the realms of kind of the understood. I'm a little bit skeptical of the idea that you can do a really alien alien in a video game and have it be a meaningful interaction with the player. It's weird that no one's tried. To, uh, uh, the closest things I could think of are like um, Tides of Numenera, where they, they can introduce you to very alien concepts and yeah creatures because they just live in prose blocks <laughs> yeah they don't well, have to do this is the thing stuff. like i think prose can handle it yeah, but like sure. i think you know this is like lovecraft's ultimate cop-out is you get to the end of the story he gestures Gentle off dude. the page at the alien <laughs> that is there mm. and never he says it's indescribable and i'm mad now mm. <laughs> and then the story ends <laughs> like and that's how you handle it because as soon as you have to present it in a visual medium it either looks silly or it doesn't or it's not alien um, as soon as you have to kind of allow people to interact with it, it it's um, it's something that text can do that basically nothing else can, really. Because the the reality of it is that, like, you know, an alien life form could easily be something we would look at and go, oh, that's a mushroom. And it's just sitting there. And there's some fabulous interiority that we're not privy to. But to us, it just looks like a mushroom. And that's probably going to be the... One day when human beings discover, you know, sapient alien life, that's probably what it'll be like. <laughs> Not, you know, and, and so in order to dramatize that necessarily it ends up getting closer to human. Like, I just don't think this idea of a alien alien is actually desirable on anything other than paper, literally. No. Yeah. You're that's, companion. I kind of liked in Mass Effect when you finally meet the Reaper 
and um it has a very is, deep voice it has a very deep voice and also it's just completely malevolent it just has no sympathy for you just has no it just all your arguments you make to it just don't connect and it's just like i don't give a fuck what you are you're just a pathetic germ to me and it was it was kind of cliche but um thanks um it's worked for me i i think because it kind of wasn't cliche at that time at least in video games it was kind of uh interesting to to see an entity like that that was just so un unconcerned with what i thought of it the much more amateurish mistake in in sci-fi and in fantasy is to have a, an enemy that uh in any way gives a fucking shit what humans think of it <laughs> like that's always like that when you're writing dialogue and you're not really thinking about it you write it as if it's a conversation between two humans mm -hmm. and the other human is going to care what the first human thinks about it mm. but actually if one of them is a immortal robot god <laughs> they should probably actually react to that differently and just say i don't i'm not trying to justify myself to you and my job is not to you know make myself make sense to you I'm literally going to reap all life. It's one of the reasons <laughs> that nothing you um, can do about it. Mass Effect Two undermined the Reapers a little bit by having Harbinger kind of taunt you throughout the entire yeah, game. Yeah, that bothered me. Like saying, "Like I've oh, got yeah. this time, Shepard. I got you." This oh, oh shit! Yeah, that was a mistake. Like, you I know, know, you feel this, Shepard. Yeah, mm, you're feeling and this. And I care for some reason. Yeah, like the more they talk, the worse it gets. Aliens. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's the best kind of take on aliens that has come up. You can make a much more realistic take on aliens, but it ends up not being as scary. Like, you know, the, the sort of cross-section between scary and not human is the type of alien that hates us for some reason that we don't fully understand and that is completely uh, immune to all our lines of reasoning, which kind of Prey does as well. They sort of, they try and delve into the science of it a bit. I don't know how effective it really is, but they sort of... They talk about how the aliens have no mirror neurons, so they can't empathize. Like, they can't imagine what's going on in another brain. All they mm. can do is just sort of, I don't know. It's actually, well, I mean, it's the same reason that Alien is a brilliant piece of alien conception. <laughs> because, and that's a, I mean that in a couple of different ways. Like, the brilliant thing about Alien as a piece of fiction is that the the creature itself is is the head crab, or the, the face hugger. It's mm. the... And it's it's sufficiently kind of unnerving and unnatural. The monster it creates is fifty percent alien, fifty percent human, and therefore can kind of behave according to kind of believable norms while still being alien for the duration of the movie, but without losing its kind of un sort of unmapped kind of alien component. Like the creature you see in the alien movies is what happens when a um a facehugger impregnates a human being yeah. and creates something with their DNA. And that leaves something to the imagination about what this creature actually is. That stuff is ruined if you go and watch Prometheus. <laughs> like, <laughs> where it's just a big man. A big yep. man did it, is the answer. <laughs> um, a big punchy man did it. But for that movie, it works perfectly. And actually, there's something in the fiction of Prey as well, where the Typhon are pretty an alien until the point where they start mimicking humans at which point the creatures you're fighting the phantoms are mimicked humans which is kind of an interesting idea and that's a way of getting there but i feel like you still need to ground it in like uh human context in order to make it function yeah it's just how you do that and you know those two things i think do it work. Right. 
in retrospect, the sort of notion that uh, mirror neurons clashes a bit with the idea that they can actually mimic anything they see. <laughs> that kind of seems like, well, uh, maybe you don't call them mirror neurons, but they got, they've got they sure got something that can understand what they, they can empathize with the cup. <laughs> yeah, they know how the cup feels. They're all cupheads. Nice. <laughs> we're all cupheads now. <laughs> like we're all sons of bitches. <laughs> Our final question comes from Evan, who writes, Dear CNC, thank you for the excellent podcast. I was playing Dawn of War 2 the other day, hyping up for the new iteration of the game. At some point, you travel to the planet Meridian, where the narrative mentions its billions of inhabitants and how they should be protected from the life-sucking tyranids. Then it struck me, where are all these people? <coughs> I apologize, I sneezed. I'm not much into Warhammer lore, but all battlefields seem to be void of anything but the engaged parties, which may make sense in the Warhammer universe, but it made me thinking about how civilians are represented in other RTSs. The only RTS I could think of that actually had civilians to protect on the battlefield is Red Alert. Then, in the Age of Empires, villages... Hang on. Then, in Age of Empires, villages are resource galleries, but they still a game unit. There is no affection towards them apart from the frustration that comes with the ruin of one's economy. There are way there are way too many RTSs, and I haven't played but a tiny fraction of them. So, is there is there an RTS that involves decision making based on the civilian populace? Does it make sense to you that an RTS that tries to capture the horror of war in regards to civilians? Thanks for reading, Evan. Yes. Uh, that's all correct. No. <laughs> <laughs> I once reviewed a game called Joint Task Force which is pretty good. I gave it a good review. I can't remember exactly what score I gave it, but it was uh, I generally liked it. It didn't get any real attention. But it was... I guess Joint Task Force, the title, was referring to some kind of I don't know, like NATO strike team or whatever. But um, it was a persistent game mechanic that uh, there would be TV news crews on your missions. So you would be out there trying to take out like terrorists or you know insurgent factions or whatever uh, but there would be civilians as well and it would be way easier to take out the enemies if you didn't care about civilians and if you could just like you know call in airstrikes and kill everyone in a certain uh location uh but if you did that the tv news crews would see you do that and that would affect your reputation and so you're kind of like how you are viewed in the international community was a an ongoing mechanic and you had to worry about that what I can't remember is, like, could you just kill the TV news crews? <laughs> I feel like, I don't think you could have directly attacked them, but what if you called an airstrike that happened to destroy them? I, I can't remember whether, you know, the events that were recorded were physically tied to a particular unit on the battlefield that if it disappeared would not record what you did. Uh, but the general gist of it was that you had to be responsible. It was like you couldn't do things that were... Um, incredibly immoral because it was just being seen by everybody so you would lose support and it would you had to care about civilians on the battlefield it's gone to terror missions uh, is the whole point of those missions is to get civilians out of uh, the area by making contact with them before the aliens get them those fucking civilians though <laughs> yeah they're <right>. idiots <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're not they they're are not useful um, yeah there's something where uh, Graham is the one who had a real problem with this um, but the, it's something like certainly if you move through their sort of rescue zone on your turn but you don't end your turn within it yeah they don't, they're not rescued that's a problem <laughs> but then there's another problem where like I think um, Graham was telling me about one that sounded like I had my own troubles with these kinds of missions but uh, 
this was a new one to me. Um, they run away from things. And if you're like standing in location X and it's outside of their rescue radius, and then on their turn, they get scared and they run to you. So now that X is in their rescue radius, they don't get rescued. <laughs> so on your turn, it's like, what the fuck? You're already in their radius, but you've still got to kind of make a move to have it that. register that they're there. I think, so this is like secondhand. So <laughs> I'm pretty sure this is Graham's complaint, not mine. Um, but I think that's the, the situation he encountered. And yeah, I think I've I think I've had the same thing where if you move into their radius, great, you rescue them. But if they move into your radius, it doesn't count, and mm. you have to sort of like just waste a move to make it register. Yeah, that's stupid. Um, so that maybe is part of an answer to the question is that often it's super irritating to put mm. uh, civilians into a war zone that you have to care about when yeah. you kind of want to be using the cool units you have. And plus, lots of games just aren't trying to be harrowing in that way and <laughs> wasting civilian civilians in front of you that concept of, of public protection though I'm, I'm surprised it's not a bigger deal um seems like a you know a good game mechanic in general just to have like here are some terrorists but there are civilians in amongst them mm. and then immediately you've got like okay some methods of dealing with a terrorist can be super precise and and therefore not ever kill uh civilians and other others are cheaper but you know you're going to risk collateral damage that's a real tension that people deal with on a regular basis and uh i you know i won't say that war games don't deal with that because i don't follow war games closely enough to say that um but yeah it's never bubbled up into kind of the the mainstream that is all of the questions we've got time for. If you'd like to send us a question for a future episode of The Great and Crowbar, you can do so by emailing us at questions at greatandcrowbar.com. You can also send us a question on Twitter at greatandcrowbar. Great Crowbar is very kindly supported by your Patreon donations. Not you specifically, person listening to this, but <laughs> you in a kind of general maybe sense, but maybe you specifically. I don't know. If you'd like it to be you specifically, you can visit patreon.com forward slash greatandcrowbar to find out more about crowdfunding our patreon supports things like the miniatures monthly podcast that me and tom do and the bloodborne weekly video to play through that me and tom do <laughs> um new episodes every sunday we're pretty excited about what's coming up some good ones because it's very silly if you enjoy the podcast, it's very helpful to us. If you could leave a review on iTunes or press the star button wherever you might find one, because that's how podcast gets made, <laughs> I guess. If you would like to follow us as individuals, I'm on Twitter at C Thurston. That's C T H U R S T E N. Tom F is at Pentadac, P E N T A D A C T. Tom S is uh, at PCG Ludo, L U D O. Thanks, Thanks for listening, everybody. everybody.